word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. This week, that would be through chapter 19 of Shadows of Self by Mr. Branderson. Hey there, this is Cross. I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers like. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. I have a bevy of liquids in front of me, Crossland. So today... Hi! Yeah, I think that's apt. I have five vessels, (laughs) is what I realized. I've got four. I have five liquid vessels. Yeah. I have tea, which is on top of what you have. So, I assume. Yeah. Okay. So... Uh, PJ, we'll get to it in a second. Today is our third episode discussing Shadows of Self by Brandon Sanderson, and we are going to chat about chapters 14 through 19 as mentioned here. But before we get too far into it, PJ, tell me your four vessels. Please explain. Well, devil's cut. We take a shot. Yep. So we've got a shot glass. For me and you. I've got my cocktail. Two. One each. I've got my beer. Yep. Three. And I've got a coffee mug of water. Mm. oh i guess five if you count the the bottle that my beer is in that's bullshit (laughs) i refuse (laughs) okay what's yours yours but add tea add tea okay fair enough yeah instead of a coffee mug of water i have a yeti of water but sasquatches they don't like to sit very still hopefully they aren't knocking on your microphone too much Hopefully not. Hopefully not. PJ, what are you what are you actually drinking though? What's that cocktail? Tell that cocktail I have decided to name Bleeder. Mm. Because it kind of kind of looks bloody a little bit. But <laughs> I didn't have any lime juice. I didn't have any limes, but I want to do sort of a sour. But I did have acid adjusted pineapple juice, which I've talked about before, but I've been having a lot of fun experimenting with and to refresh on that it's essentially pineapple juice with citric and and malic acid added to it in order to bring the acid levels up to that of lime juice so it acts as far as like recipe building and and palate sort of feeling goes like lime juice but it tastes like pineapple it's very cool modern sort of thing that is happening in some like high-end cocktail circles but I just kind of wanted to throw stuff together. So Bleeder is essentially a bourbon sour with green chartreuse and pineapple juice <laughs> and a float of port. <laughs> so it's an ounce and a half of bourbon. Threw stuff together indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Ounce and a half of bourbon, half an ounce of green chartreuse, half an ounce of pineapple juice or acid adjusted pineapple juice, half an ounce of simple syrup. And then I took two full large ice cubes instead of like one and like breaking one down for like agitation and more dilution. I just put two full ones in there and shook the shit out of it until it started essentially like slushifying a little bit. Okay. So then open poured that. So you've got the slushy and then two larger ice cubes. And then I floated port on top of that. And it kind of looks like when you, there's there's a shot, I think it's in, oh God, what movie or show? Oh, Whiplash. It's in Whiplash. 
where he's mm-hmm. drumming and his fingers are ble- like his hand is bleeding and he sticks it into that bucket of ice water. That's kind of the look that I got out of this. So like the tendrils of the port is like reaching down. Mm-hmm. Drink. I posted yeah. a picture really of pretty. it in in. But be crazy if you put a picture of it on our website. That'd be pretty cool. Huh? Right. I mean, it'd be really cool if our website was capable of doing that. To begin I, with, yeah, it is, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've I've got so many. I'm so sorry, everybody. I keep saying this, but I have so many of them like backed up, and I've I know what everyone is. I just need to fucking do it. So don't don't say sorry. Just do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it actually worked out really well. I like it. It's a lot yep. of aggressive flavors. I've been really liking the chartreuse with pineapple combination for whatever reason. It seems weird, but I mean, it's herbal and sweet and it just, I think it kind of works. And then adding a fairly aggressive bourbon, I used Yellowstone, which is what I took a shot of earlier. And then this port isn't super sweet. I think it's a ruby, but it's pretty, uh, pretty dry considerably or considering. So I made Kaylin a New York port lemonade a couple days ago, and she did not like it as much as the previous one because this is a much drier port. Gotcha. That Bogle one was fucking awesome. I need to pick up another one of those bottles. Yeah, that sounded ridiculous. I've recently made a port lemonade with a white port, and it was fantastic. I'd recommend trying as well. Yeah. Anyway, following that up is something pretty special. So Dangerous Man Brewing Company has become i mean they're they're fairly old at this point but they kind of broke into the scene early on in the, the minnesota craft beer sort of movement mm-hmm. but their big claim to fame was their peanut butter port a peanut butter porter and their chocolate milk stout and then you could order a pour of both of them together getting chocolate and peanut butter really really good and made a name for themselves and this is a bottle of their imperial peanut butter porter aged in Blanton bourbon barrels. And it is phenomenal. It's really, really good. And you get sort of the pseudo chocolate flavor from like the combination of just being a porter with the roasted malt and everything, but that sort of softness from sitting in that bourbon barrel for a while and being a heavier malt bill to get it up to 11% compared to their, what, 5% standard. Worked out in its favor tremendously. So, very, very, very good. You are high on that beer. That's great. I am. Love it. It's awesome. What are you drinking, Crossland? I am having a really easy cocktail. It is called the Pin Cushion. It's a spin on the Boulevardier, which is generally considered a classic cocktail. So, this is a pretty conventional drink, but it's not... What you'd expect necessarily. I, I shouldn't say conventional drink. It's a conventional combination, but not a conventional cocktail itself. So what it is, it is it is one and a half ounces of rye, three quarters ounce Campari, three quarters ounce sweet vermouth, and a dash or a rinse of absinthe in your glass. And this is a drink that is built right in the glass as well. So this is not something that you stir or shake or do anything else. You're just throwing it in. You throw some ice ice in, you stir it and drink it with the ice. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's in a double rocks glass. I yes. thought I thought it was in martini glass. For no, reason. no, no, no. Yeah, you you typically wouldn't put ice in a martini glass. That's so, why I thought it was yeah. weird. <laughs> no, yeah, it's it's in a, it's in a double rocks low ball. So 
Yes. It's very good. I, I'm actually using... So End of Days had a brand new release this week, which is their Rye that they just put out. And it is fantastic. So I wanted to make a cocktail with it because I'm not going to make a whole ton of cocktails with it because it's just so fucking good on its own. But I wanted to while I still had a decent amount and I wasn't going to feel bad about it. So I was like, you know what? Let's we'll commit. We'll we'll try a pincushion. And it's really tasty. Mm-hmm. It's only gotten better as the ice has gone away. I haven't I had like two sips right at the beginning and I haven't had any until right now. And the ice cube is almost entirely gone. It's <laughs> it's just super good. Yeah. We definitely talked for like 40 minutes again today. We did. We what the devil's cut? What is the difference between the pincushion and a boulevardier? How good of you to ask, PJ? So, a couple of differences. Well, it, it is the name. It's definitely the name. For one, PJ, one of the differences is the ratios themselves. So, a Boulevardier is going to be one and a quarter ounces of bourbon or rye, one ounce of Campari, one ounce of sweet vermouth, and an orange twist. So, two different changes here are an increase in the rye count and then decreasing the Campari and vermouth and then adding absinthe. Okay. So for that little bit of anise throughout. Mm-hmm. Did you do a twist over that? I don't have oranges. So no. Would you have? Probably just for like a little bit of the oil wash. But in all honesty, it's really good without. But just like a little bit of the oils probably would have gone. And given it a little bit of freshness that I think this is missing. But again, I wouldn't, you know, I don't hold against the drink. It's it's more of a me grocery shopping problem and trying to build things at the last minute. Fair enough. Like you and your uh, acid pineapple <laughs> with a lack of wine. <laughs> yes. Yes, a little. Bit. All right. What are you follow? Are you following that up with anything? Oh, yes, 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 yes. I am. I am following it up with a new Anthem Thought Police, which is a great beer that they have never put out before. But obviously a reference to 1984, a bunch of marching people. You've got I. It's really cool looking. Love new Anthem. A lot of their beers, this has been kind of a mainstay of theirs, but it's been one that they've only served in the tap room historically. So this is actually their first canning. Okay. Uh, Style? So, uh, New New England double, I think. Okay. Nice. Sorry, I'm just double checking here. This is IPA, so actually I don't think it's a double. I always forget if this one's the double or if the other one is, but because they've mm-hmm. got a single and a double variant. But yeah, 7.7%. So it's a high, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a big old. That's sorry. a big one left hand okay yeah cool your hand right. seems to be improving a little bit significantly better yeah i'm no longer experiencing numbness just kidding it's but it's fine the thumb the thumb is the worst part right now and like the shape of like sitting idly with the mouse on i still have trouble articulating certain things like i was talking to bingham earlier and it was like can't open uh can't open a pickle jar with my right hand and bingham goes i open them with my left and i'm like no, you fucking don't. I don't believe you. <laughs> I do. You hold the jar with your right and open it with your left. Yeah. Really? Yeah. You don't use your Jars strongest hand to turn the big thing. Why? I don't know. That like just if feels it's a natural. hard jar. Holding stuff with my right hand and manipulate. I also deal left-handed. Like I deal cards left-handed. Uh- Right, right, right. I forgot that you're dumb. I got it. Yeah. Okay. So with that, we are going to go into the chapters. Actually, before we go into the chapters, PJ, how'd you feel about this week's penultimate reading? This made me really appreciate Marisy. I think more than anything, I gained an intense appreciation for Marisy, and we'll get into that, I'm sure. 
but mm-hmm. that's kind of my biggest takeaway from it. Cool. That's great. Yeah. This section for me solidifies the idea that these are two trilogies, so to speak, and that alloy of law really kind of is its own thing because you see more of the reflection and mirrors here between the two trilogies and sort of inversion. I think that said, I'm not, I'm not like ruling out alloy of law. Alloy of law is totally necessary reading, but you get to start to see some thematic resonance between the eras in inside of this reading more and more and more. Mm -hmm. I can see that. So it's, it's not that, I don't think that you can skip Alloy of Law, and I don't think anyone should. I think you because could. You, would, you could. After you last week, I, benefit. Think you, I, I think I believe that you could. I still don't think you should, though, and I think it's dumb that it's considered separate. I mean, yeah, considered separate is one thing. Written to be a part of a series is another, right? So, like, True. that that's the biggest difference to me is like that novel is standalone not to say that you you should read the standalone so that you can understand the series but you know yeah yep that's that's my whole thing with like this will be brief the first law right is composed of nine books but two trilogies (laughs) because three of the books are standalone but you have to read the standalone books in order to love the second trilogy fully like you so does it go standalone Trilogy, standalone, trilogy, standalone? No, it goes trilogy, standalone, 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 trilogy. That's fucking stupid, and I disagree with you. What do you mean? <laughs> Those are three in a row required. But they're, but they're not consecutive. They're not a trilogy because they aren't connected immediately. There's nothing immediately that makes it necessary to read those books. And they're much more, di- for the record, they're much more disconnected than alloy of law is to this so it's a little bit of an unfair comparison wherein these are direct characters that are traded between the two and their main characters it's literally the same points of view so that's very different versus in the first law standalone so you've got a bevy of different characters with maybe one or two overlapping characters and even then they're minor sometimes okay so Hmm. the standalones in first law are more like they share a world and so like you more context you have in the world, more better. This is like, this is a plot thread <laughs> that is dangling. Fair. So that that's my comparison. All right, cool. With that, let's get into our chapters here. We're going to start with chapter 14. Of course, we kick off this week's reading with Wax's perspective as he prowls over the streets. We keep using the analogy that he's like Batman during times like these, but this is like literally some of the most dark night shit that he does inside this book this week he is like living his batman life as best as he can you know he drops in and breaks up a riot near a rioting parlor in a pathian sanctuary and drops in on a kid who literally shits himself and much much more as he kind of hops around town <laughs> these moments okay we gotta address this yeah how many common criminals have shat themselves in batman's presence it's got to be a Hot. lot. It's got to be a lot. It's got to be a lot. <laughs> it's got to more than four, you know? Yeah. Probably. Probably. I. Go ahead. Oh, I, I was going to move on to the riding and soothing parlors, but sorry. Oh, no. All, all that I was going to say is like, we do like this is wax feels like Batman here. It's almost it's almost too. it's so on the nose sometimes that I'm like, oh, man. 
this makes sense within the power set and I definitely get it. And there's just some like superhero ish ish nature here where I don't want to say it's as though the magic system is transformed and changed, but this starts to like blur that line a little bit between like what's a superhero, what's a magic user a little bit more than conventional fantasy does. Yeah. That said, one of the big differences off the bat is a rule set to which things have to adhere. I get that, but yeah, there's also the anonymity thing, which is not present at all here. Like there's no alter ego. Yeah. Specifically in a Batman comparison, that's not omnipresent with superheroes like Iron Man, for instance. Yeah. But we're talking um, about Batman. I, I know I was just, I was trying to, you might have been thinking about other between, superheroes, but you didn't say that. No, I know. But when I, when I talked about the difference between when the line starts to get blurry between magic and super, like ah. superpowers, that's what I meant. But yeah, you're right. I have been comparing him to Batman for sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. He is definitely more not, or he is less anonymous, excuse me, than, than Batman is. And obviously he actually has powers where Batman does not. Yeah. They're both absurdly wealthy. Which is a power in and of itself. Right. Right. <laughs> don't as get, the people of the streets are apt twisted. to point out to <laughs> wax lordship um, you want to talk about the riding parlor i would totally go to both of these places i would absolutely like the utility of being able to just go and force yourself to relax externally is amazing maybe it's not healthy to rely on that as a crutch but I don't care. I want that. Rioting parlors, on the other hand, are just Twitter. Or Reddit. I mean, either way. Yeah. Pick your poison. My Reddit is I, just I do. mushrooms and lockpicking. <laughs> Those are mostly what I look <laughs> at on my subreddits. I don't venture into the things that will make me upset. That's fair. I, I definitely understand. The idea of avoiding those things, I for me, you know, at this point, we don't see the soothing parlor. Definitely get bringing it up here. It makes sense to talk about it because it's like this entire concept of like, oh, I could go somewhere and have my emotions manipulated. It's like those things kind of exist in the real world in different facets. Like there are some real world analogs that Sanderson's clearly kind of drawing upon here inside of this fantasy setting. But the way that you phrase the idea of a soothing parlor being somewhere that you could go to like have your emotions forced out of you to some degree. Mm -hmm. Just it's therapy, man. It's just therapy. It is, but that's work. Yeah. (laughs) That's what what solves the problem, which is also what you said is that it's like forcing them out of you. Isn't healthy. So like you address, you address the problem before we got there, but I definitely have to laugh, have to giggle at that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Oh man. But, and then the Pathian sanctuary, like this idea of it just being like an old style terrace hut with like a chair in it (laughs) that you like, just go and talk to God, (laughs) talk to, talk to God, poop a little bit. (laughs) It's a bunch of little pooping rooms everywhere. Oh no. (laughs) The Pathians are going to be so upset at us. Okay. So let's, let's take this to the extreme that we know it would come to. If it followed the same sort of path that like modern religions do. And sure. what does a Pathian super church look like? Well, they, they do have churches. We we do kind of know this because oh, yeah, he does say true. that there are churches. But what does a Pathian <laughs> super church look like? So it would have to disentangle itself from harmony pretty far, which is an unrealistic, right? Mm. So I'm just trying to work through the the variables. What does disentangling itself from harmony but promoting harmony look like? 
No, promoting yourself while pretending to promote harmony. Sure, 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 sure. The only thing that came to mind was like selling stuff that balances your pH, like <laughs> <laughs> your internal pH. Oh no! We got stuff for basic people. We've got stuff All for right. acidic people. Oh fuck! <laughs> like, I'm just, I'm just imagining like selling certain waters and like Helka seltzer tablets, <laughs> like. Apple cider vinegar. I mean, you're like, yeah, you're gonna drink three of these, like, <laughs> like a bad doctor's office. It's like selling low. It's like the pH drink, balance is too much benefit. Alkaline water with lemon juice. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh. I remember reading that on some food blog somewhere, and I'm like, you know that that's not you, you, you're counteracting the entire purpose here, <laughs> which is kind of bullshit anyway. I mean, there there are things to be said about pH balance for your gut biome, but sure. But your gut biome is there connected could, to there. Are, there are ways health. to do that better than just buying alkaline water. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> alkaline water is probably the least effective. I mean, it's helpful, but it's probably the. It's kind of like putting on a band aid when you've got an amputation. Like you, the band aid's not gonna. That's not enough. It's not the right solution. It's not the right tool. Yeah. You know, it is the right tool. Accidentally picking something up and bringing it to your mouth with your wrong hand and suffering pain while ingesting alcohol. Neat. Switching that over to the left side of the table. Fuck you and you double handed (laughs) bullshit. Okay. Next up, we find Wax running into a member of the set family, not to be confused with the set organization, of course. However, this set runs a taxi business. That that being a member of the family, for the record. And this week in general... With a C, yes. Yes. <laughs> in general. Does a great job of showing us how Alamancy becomes incorporated into the economy and the legal system itself. In this case, a coin shot scout who goes and looks for the busiest parts of town to send out the carts to, and an illegal rioter to drum up business in different locations. Wax, however, is looking specifically for driver 16, who has popped himself into a soothing par- parlor after a brief interrogation that yields us that information. This dude... Mr. Set, whatever his first name is. Excuse me, but wheeling and dealing just like his grandpappy used to do. <laughs> <laughs> because Wheaton, cars, wheelchairs, and shrewd business sense. Do you get it? I truly had not connected the <laughs> wheelchair to the carriages, actually. Good work. <laughs> I I didn't I hadn't I didn't nope didn't even cross my mind didn't think about it. Well, I'm glad my shitty joke also just went over your head. I mean, kind of. It's it's interesting because a it's a good joke. the The shitty joke did not go completely over my head. I wheeling and dealing like I figured you were talking about like the fact that they both have wheels and that they both make deals. So like shitty joke, good. But the extra textual nature of it also being like, oh yes, they both have wheeling businesses and therefore my brain also says the wheelchair was an invention during sets time because of that invention did his family like take it and run with it and develop it into carriages which previously weren't necessary because of canal boats like is there some sort of like ultra like that could be a way of them maintaining wealth it's it's a loose thing but like that's where my brain went more if that makes sense i didn't get the I didn't get the I'm idea not suggesting that, that the text necessarily suggests that, but yeah, I didn't get the idea that set 
invented the wheelchair. I also don't think that he invented the wheelchair, but I think that he is definitely the kind of person who would take it and profit off of it. That's fair. That's true. <laughs> like, I'm surprised by the less than elevated level of this guy's like status, considering Alrian's position. It's mentioned that she she's no longer set after their marriage, right? I don't think so. I would assume she's a Ladrian. She'd be. I mean, based on Sanderson's views and everything else, inside of the text. Right. I didn't get the idea that she had siblings, but maybe that she was has just a brother. She her? has a brother. Yeah. Oh, I don't remember that. That it, he really only comes up in the second book, and then he kind Njordan, Janordan, Janor, Janor. You remember how we had a really tough time saying his fucking name? No, I do. <laughs> Janorandin. I'll throw in the okay. chat. It's fine. But I mean, uh, either way, he and Wax are at least fairly closely related. Cousins. Distant. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it is 300 years, huh? It is, but I mean, distant cousins still. Like, yeah. they could date, but. <laughs> <laughs> as, as they should. As they should, yes. Um, it's the only solution. It's in the contract. Hey, yep. It's in the Historica. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, her. He he and Steris' contract. Oh yes, 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 yes. Right, must date cousin. Yep. But I did appreciate seeing the just to get back to the actual text <laughs> a little bit. The usage of alamancy in in different industries. And how they can be sort of applied in a way that's not strictly combative or offensive, like we've been mm-hmm. mostly seeing. Yeah, the the economic implications of a lot of these things, and also the idea that they have to be regulated with like the Alamantic Agreement of ninety four or what was it is like another like little great note that I really appreciated because it gives you this idea of like this is really a society that is incorporated into it. Almancy and Farrakhemi, which we get even more of later from Maracy's perspective that I really appreciate too. Right. Yep, for sure. So we move from Wax over to Maracy, who is back in the constabulary chatting with Milan. The pair have a discussion surrounding the egalitarian nature of the constabulary because of the role that Vin plays as a model for women inside of Elendel society. Of course, Milan still finds that humans tend to be sexist despite their best intentions and points to the fact that Chandra have very different perspectives on gender to begin with. That also brings us to their differing perspectives on religion, and Milan definitely finds it odd that someone would worship the guy who died versus the one who saved the world. What do you think about these conversations? I can't help but compare this conversation directly to one that Vin had with, I can't remember if it was Tensoon or Arsura at that point, where there, she's talking about, I think it must have been Tensoon at this point, but still pretending to be Arsura. I'm pretty sure it was, yeah. I think. Where it seemed like there was a pretty solid, defined gender to the Chandra. It was just difficult for humans to interpret it because they could take male or female forms regardless of what they were themselves. Whereas this seems much more the form that they take defines their gender. Like it seems, it seems like it flips which one comes first in the definition. 
think it just allows them to choose, right? Like that's kind of the the idea is that they're more gender bendy than assumed, right? And I, I think that some of that also comes from something that we could talk about from Era One, where it's like they're each generation is more radical than the last, right? And so there are evolving views on what a body even is to begin with, right? Where you've got the guy with the tree body and then you've got she everyone is a else. Seventh, yeah. Yeah. Right. So you've got these evolving ideals and ideas within an immortal species, which to be frank, I feel like is pretty rare for most immortal species inside of a lot of fiction, because generally who's going to be the most locked in for all time, like the immortals. It's something that Tolkien set up with the elves. They're the least progressive of of races because they believe themselves to be completely pure. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's it's just I guess it's, it, it is technically a matter of perspective from each of them between Ten, Tensoon and, Orsor, and uh, Milan. But mm-hmm. it just, it, it's spoken with such conviction. Yeah, right. And, and definitiveness. It definitely, it, and it is something, and maybe that's just the conviction with which she believes it, too. That could that's be true. the other part of this to consider is, and especially considering the way that we know Milan from before, she was very convicted in a lot of those beliefs, like a kind of at the time, like an angsty teenager. But now, mm-hmm. you know, I think she's equated herself to a 20 something at this point, like a late 20 something. Yeah. In terms of emotional age. So I do want to talk for a little bit about the religious acts aspect that they brought up as well, beyond just the the gender aspect. And and this idea that Milan finds it very weird that anyone worships Kelsier to begin with, the guy who died versus the literal God that survived. Um, yeah. What what do you think about that? I, there is a nuance there that she's missing. And I think in in a way, Sazed kind like he left this mortal world too. So however you want to define death, so did he. Kelsier also to to advocate for that belief system. None of this happens without his martyrdom. And the the pieces could have still been in place to continue and to to progress, but you wouldn't get everybody rallying behind the crew in the same way without Kelsier putting it all forward and dying for the cause. That's true that there is, there is something to that there, which I think is the foundation of the belief, right? I do want to bring up something that's textual. I left it out because I wanted to see if it was something you pulled in, but I know that I'm going to get screamed at if I don't bring it up. So in the text here, while they're debating this, uh, just reading this verbatim from Marisi. Harmony is not my god. I'm a survivor, survivorist. Oh, yeah, Milan said, because that makes sense. Worship the guy who died rather than the one who saved the world. The survivor transcended death, Marisi said, looking back on the hand of the door but not entering. He survived even being killed, adopting the mantle of the Ascendant during the time between Preservation's death and Vin's ascen- ascension. Rust, was she arguing theology with a demigod? Milan, however... Just cocked her head. What? Really? Yeah, I don't remember that happening. Kind of kind of sounds like some added stuff, but she does clarify at the very least that yes, Harmony wrote it of wrote of it himself in the words of founding Milan. And Milan goes off to say, like, well, I didn't fucking read that shit. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> I was there. Interesting. I mean that plays into a still unanswered question of that that conversation between Sazed as Harmony at that point and Spook mm. about 
becoming like bestowing the gift of Mistborn upon him as a gift from Kelsier and whether or not that was just what he believed Kelsier would have wanted or if it was actually a an extra planar conversation of some sort. I think it's interpretation of the wishes of Kelsier, but that's not technically yeah, clarified, I don't think. No, we don't really have a clarification on that at all, which is why this also adds a little bit of that. And I think that's what makes it interesting, too, is that it adds a little bit of context to that kind of side of things. Not context, but a little bit of better to call it like it's a, it convolutes it a little bit. Right. It brings in a little bit of like, was it as clear cut as I thought it was? Is it could this religion could this religion already be going down the path of megachurches where like the myth is starting to spread beyond the point? Are these the original words of founding that we're reading or are they translated like so? Yeah, that's yeah. I, I think I would get skewered if I didn't bring that up. So I, I had to. I just wanted to see if you would bring it up for, for question's sake. But there's another note here as a conversation between Marisi and Micklin breaks out. And we feel more of that resentment that the officers have towards Marisi here. Milan confronts Marisi about this. But she gets frustrated about her position inside of the constabulary despite working on it. She even voices to Milan that Wax is a part of the problem and a part of the reason that she's in this situation to begin with. Milan and Marisi end up having a conversation about human nature, wrapping this all up, as Marisi is pretty sure that she's more in tune with human emotions than Milan is herself. I mean, this this basically loops back to the previous conversation and sort mm-hmm. of the... Am I really arguing with a demigod about philosophy kind of or about theology? And there's there's a little bit of is it a lack of respect for the religious history Mm -hmm. between between these faceless immortals and and humanity? Or is it is it just the fact that things aren't exactly as they're written and these people know it? (laughs) Like there, it does we, lead. We saw the sort of augmentation of survivorism through the first trilogy. Mm-hmm. Even like in the in the decade after Kelsier's death, it happens quickly, and it can only spiral more in three hundred years. Yeah, three centuries of time is. I mean, this is a third of the time of the Lord Ruler. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and it's a significant amount of time for things to change. Well, still haven't been perfect no and they should be. not even close <laughs> harmony's <laughs> fucking it all up coddling them too much do you think it's harmony's fault for coddling harmony thinks it's harmony's fault for coddling you know fair point he does think <laughs> it's his fault <laughs> but do you agree with him i guess is maybe the question not necessarily but he has a direct example apparently whether that whether or not that's on this world or a different world that he's able to observe that he's not interacting with, he can see what he's doing and what they're doing or what he's doing and, and what he's not doing and the difference in outcomes, but people are fickle. So they're always going to find a way to ruin themselves. I remember where I was going with this. No, I I think that, I think that that's a good spot to end it on in all honesty, talking about the Chandra and sort of the, the nature of things, right? Which is kind of what you were getting to. What I do think is interesting is Milan's knee-jerk reaction to like 
come to Marisi's defense in this scenario at the constabulary. And I don't know why I can't, I can't understand what her motivation would be to run to Marisi's defense. Still trying to figure that out. Hmm. I mean, is it just that she was young and under, under regarded, not underappreciated, but underestimated? In in the time of who of running in to defend Milan, wanting defending to, Marisi. like wanting to defend Marisi from the other constables that are sneering at her, I think she's just seeing it as unfair okay. treatment more than anything else. I I don't think that there's any sort of like you said underregarded is one thing for sure, but I I don't know that there is anything so specific that we can lean on. Wow, good work. PJ finishes cocktail, everybody. We haven't even finished the first chapter. Okay. But really that said, yeah. I, what's up? Tasty. <laughs> nice. I mean, you just drank the whole thing. You just went, but yeah, I, I really, I do think that a lot of this is on just Milan's understanding of equality and being kind of removed from the picture. I mean, she even says that like as a chondra, she doesn't spend a whole lot of time occupying other bodies or like trying to blend in. She's probably often with people that she likes and associates with that are regular, regular people that know her as her, you know, or chondra either way. Mm-hmm. And she finds the shit unfair. And yeah. so she just reacts very open and honestly because, you know, she's kind of like just an immortal, normal person to some degree. I mean, not entirely, of course, but it's kind of the that's, way she spends herself a little bit. That's a fair assessment. Especially with her interactions with Wayne. Mm-hmm. That comes across. Yeah. Yeah. Because she still she still is a bunch of naivete. It's not as though she is. And this really comes across when we get to like Aradel and the way that she's like, oh, hoity toity and thou and thoust and all the formal <laughs> bullshit that she keeps spouting. She's just a, she's she's just a person kind of at heart, you know, not not a human person, but she's just a person. And I think that's really great because I think that immortal characters can obvi- can so often be some of the least interesting pieces of shit that are just like statues, the ultimate version of like stoic-esque where they're like, there's nothing better than what I believe and what I believe is the only way. Very much like the Conjurer, the second generation Conjurer were in the first series. I feel like a great sort of other take on that. And they're not technically immortal. But kind of close in in comparison. They're immortal. They aren't invulnerable. Right. No. But but sort of a comparison. Oh, sorry. To make your counter. Yeah. Would be vampires and what we do in the shadows, and sort of their interactions with the modern world as ancient beings. Yeah. Yeah. They're more disconnected versus like you have the new you know energy vampire that's very fresh and new and feels more like a person, even if he's you know. A bloodsucker in his own right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've watched the TV show, right? I'm not. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, all right. Just making sure. I, I talked watched, to someone the I other day. Watched who, season four yet? But I haven't either. So, but I I talked to someone the other day who had seen the movie but and loved the movie but hadn't seen the show and I was like, "You're missing out on one of the best parts <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that they didn't even think of yet." So yeah. Good. So it's so good. So we end this chapter with a note on what happened to the body and how Bleeder had previously escaped a grave of an executed individual. And the proof has begun to come to the surface. We're we're starting to get more and more kind of evidence that Bleeder's been a lot of places. Yeah, this is a 
strange, unsettling sort of little bit of information to come across. And I can't help but think I, I keep going back and forth on this. Would it have been stronger to come across this before our understanding of bleeder and like hear about this, like desecrated grave first, or would that have just confused things? I think that it would have been better to hear about this first. I think that the general, a a light complaint that I have about this book is that it is a mystery novel that doesn't really write itself like a mystery novel. You know what I mean? Like we don't, we aren't necessarily able to string a lot of these pieces together on our own. And so instead we are given these bits of information to string together a different puzzle versus like in Agatha Christie, you'll see like all the pieces will be there. You just don't see how they assemble until someone pulls the string taut and everything's very clear. Like what, what if instead of this reveal, it was the disrespect of learning about the desecrated grave of bloody tan. Yeah. Right. Something like that. Any any other number of options. Yeah, totally. I I think that there are a lot of different ways that this could be done. But yeah, I I think that that is probably ultimately my biggest gripe with the entire book. But it's a small it's a small gripe, truth be told. So it's still it's still it gives the feeling and Mm -hmm. it's it's a cool reveal. It's a cool story. But I think it could have notched up the sort of mystery aspects of it. A little bit. Right, right. It could have provided some suspense to like have, you know, a desecrated grave enter the picture and be like, well, what's that doing? Like, what? why that? Before we have the conjurer reintroduced, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. But he's also, I mean, it's worth, it's worth pointing out too. Sanderson in this series is very good about maintaining the pace and these books go really quick. Like this is snappy as hell. No waste. That's true. Sometimes you want more, but. I mean, I, I talked to you today while I was driving my dogs to the groomer and you're like, yeah, I was just listening to the book and then it was done. I'm like, all right, that was like an hour and a half. It, it felt so fast. It, yeah. It this really, week in particular. Yeah. Felt very fast. Yeah. And I don't I feel think like the page I count is different. It. No, it's about the same. Yeah. Yeah. It's I dense. Mean, it's dense. Yeah. Week to week, I should say. It's it's about the same page count. Yeah. I But, like, there's something strange about the fact that, like, it's dense, but it's not weighted down by that density. Mm-hmm. Like, it, well-paced. It's very, very well-paced. There's always yeah, something briskly happening. paced. Yeah. Right. That's why, despite doubling our page totals, which is really kind of just accelerating our our word count a little bit by like 20% if we look at chapter over chapter between the books that we've read before it is sometimes really hard to to try to do these chapters concisely because literally so much happens in every chapter that it makes it tough to give it the treatment because simultaneously it feels like so much happens that we can't not cover it and you know, so little pages have gone by that like we would be going so fucking slow through this book if we did it any differently. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. All right. With that, we get into chapter 15. We're back with Wax looking for the man Chapau, and we're back in full noir detective mode. I'm going to try to veer away from using Batman here, but at the very least, I want to say this is where we switch from maybe Keaton Batman to Pattinson 
Batman, where we do kind of feel like we enter into a the Batman mode. And it really feels like a noir film for most of the rest of this from Wax's perspective for a while. You get kind of I don't know about it, you, but like with the mists, it kind of feels like it's a dark and stormy night and you can see the moon overhead and like they're, you know, the sun glare is standing on the pylon and all these other small details just lend itself to a very noir-esque look. Wax reaches the soothing parlor and notices the feelings immediately that are being pressed upon him, regretting not bringing his aluminum-lined hat to reflect these things. He makes his way up to the man and administers a real quick Vought-Kampf test to make sure he isn't a chondra and is kind of broken emotionally in that moment. We figure out that Chapeau is a very broken man. For those of you who don't know, the Vought-Kampf niche joke is it's the Blade Runner test to make sure you're not a replicant okay cool fuck it's it's so bad when you don't laugh at my joke because i'm like is anyone else gonna is anyone else gonna get the reference all right well fuck it's it's dense set of stuff you're talking about yeah it's fair yeah it's fair he sought this place to get rid of his feelings to break down his memories but that's not something that they can do here of course but this entire chapter ends on kind of an eerie note he says not this chapter this little section this little Triple dot. He says that he saw himself. Yep. Regarding the trying to forget everything through soothing. He just needs to like learn the rules of Alamancy or something like that. Read the words of founding. They're probably there. Probably. It'd be so twisted and so fucked to see like a, an altered version of yourself after like, it sees you and it morphs and God, it's so unsettling. It's so fucking mm-hmm. gross. I have to wonder if this guy's named because the the French word for hat is chapeau. It's spelled differently, but interesting. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I I'll tell you what. This series, not the most clever names in the world. <laughs> <laughs> this era, Sanderson's kind of going for on the nose. <laughs> a lot of things that's a great question i genuinely don't know i maybe hats a cover-up hats a personality Ooh, if we look into that a little bit more from wayne's perspective could this be a misleading note that's what in the chapter i don't know find out more next week but yeah absolutely this is a very disturbing moment and i i really enjoy the way in particular that this section is written this chapter is written because it does do a really great job of almost giving you like a TV episode style stinger moment where it's like a stinger and then a cut to commercial break <laughs> where you go <laughs> and you switch to the B plot, you know, and you and then you'll come back to the A plot. Totally does. Yeah. That's also how this weekends <laughs> is in a cliffhanger stinger. Yeah. So I really, I really enjoyed this, this moment and this call out. So, and then you're like, well, fuck, I just started this chapter. I got to read through the end of it. But we move over to Marisi, of whom meets Ardell on a roof overlooking the city. He sends out a couple of likely mercenary bat people, I mean, coin shots out into the night before discussing with, you can see the fucking voice to text error here, Arable, Ardell, the cause of the assassin, and the fact that it is one of the Chondra of whom is doing it, taking part in this. He seeks proof, of course, to confirm that it is one of these faceless immortals that he's heard so much about but knows nothing of, and gets it in the form of Milan transforming before his very eyes and explaining Palm's lost soul. This is a moment that is played straight until suddenly 
it's kind of a joke about snoring. <laughs> like, it's it's a very serious moment with like almost seemingly I can imagine the bat signal in the sky. <laughs> like the, I don't know. This seems like a very Commissioner Gordon moment. <laughs> How dare you? Okay. She is dead serious about the snoring and is absolutely <laughs> being a cryptic immortal being no it was a great comedic moment mm-hmm. and i think it really does a good job of highlighting how people are going to look for deep meaning in things especially when they expect there to be meaning somewhere they'll just attribute whatever meaningless thing as like something very profound and like you see that everywhere you see that in things that aren't even supposed to be meaningful mm-hmm. so we do it I do it at least. Sure, we literally <laughs> look for meaning in everything. Yeah, I do. I do appreciate the commentary on it, right? Like, I I do really appreciate that portion of this, and I do think that it's important that this isn't entirely played straight. But it is like we were kind of commenting on earlier. It is very funny that she has Milan presents herself in this way, you know, outwardly as this, as though she has to be this perfect image of the faceless immortals, and I don't. It's it's just a it's. Not only is it a funny moment that it breaks down around the snoring, but it's a funny idea given the woman that we know to be Milan, you know, and just mm-hmm. the the presentation of herself showing up and being like thoused <laughs> and all of that shit. It's just so good. Just using the term human for whatever yep. reason. Human. <laughs> is simultaneously like pious and derogatory somehow. <laughs> that's a great way of putting it it is know. it is very yeah pious and derogatory that is specifically correct i don't nothing else to say no notes on that no notes after taking in the information ardell and marisi share one more note of conversation that around spying on wax to make sure that he stays in line as he is the closest thing to a rogue element in all of this she agrees but says that she cannot lie to wax and will have to tell him that she is doing so. He thinks this is fine. Of course, both Marisi and Milan take off from the constabulary to the governor's mansion. So this almost set up a really cool, like, not quite double agent, but sort of uh, a spy. Just a in general, spy, a but reporter. like a like a where did the allegiances lie? Kind of a question. Not, I mean that a little bit, but dramatic irony, sort of scenario mm. between wax and marisy and like him sharing things with her being a confidant and us understanding that most of that's going to go back to the constabulary like it, it almost set up this really weird not stressful there's a very common word that i'm looking for that i think starts with an s the dynamic is god damn it i'm gonna think of it it's it's a stupidly like common term okay but I don't know. It was almost it was almost a very fun dynamic that we were going to get into. And it just completely negated itself. And it's a great compromise to say, and it makes sense for Marisy's character to say, yes, I'll spy on him, but I'm going to tell him I'm doing it. Like, I'll report on what he's doing, but I'm going to tell him that that's what's happening. Like that That's not fun. <laughs> 
but it is what she would do. You know, do you, do you get where I'm coming from? Yeah, no, I, I definitely, I definitely know where you're, where you're going with or what, where you're moving towards. Right. And I think that it is, I think that it's really, I, I agree with you and I definitely understand exactly what you're getting at. It's also very tropey in its own right. Right. Like it, it's very tropey to have kind of the double agent in this moment. And so I appreciate that from Marcy's perspective, from a character perspective, she has to be honest and she demands that level of honesty, A, because I don't think she's capable of lying. I don't think she's capable of holding up that front. And then B, because her morals won't let her. Like she morally has to be honest because she is, she doesn't necessarily believe this fully herself, but she does, at least to us in the story, kind of represent the best version of the law. Yeah, I do wonder if this will force her to adopt more of Wax's interpretation of the law or the best version mm. of the law. I think it I think it already does within this week. I think we get that later when she's in the mansion. You know yeah. what I mean? Like we'll That's we'll get to that in a second. But I think that yes, your your prediction is ultimately correct on that or your foresight into thinking about the character and theme. But that's before um, this even happens. Like that's before this comes into play. I mean, his th- this is straight up an assignment to spend time with and work with Wax, as opposed to just her doing it on her own time. This is going to be her doing it on the constabulary's time. So, is that going to influence her policing sort of methods? Mm, got it. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. And does that? I understand. Does that evolution change what she actually reports? <laughs> and it very well may. We do have to see that yet to see what actually makes its way back to Aradel or Arabel, if you're my voice to text for notes. Arabel land. <laughs> that and I, I mentioned this to you offline, but like Aradel and were the two things that fought me all the time going through notes. It's not that innate is a hard word. Ardell, okay, I get it, but it was it was annoying and it was constant. But innate specifically was the most annoying because it would shift the grammar around the word because it assumed that I was saying everything and doing everything wrong when it's a proper fucking noun in this case. So God yep. damn it. Yeah. But I, I do I do appreciate kind of the the take on the trope and kind of the I, it's not an inversing or a reversing, but a pushing against, right? Because it is what her character naturally would do. But we have to see how that pays off. Like, to what degree does her honesty, you know, where where does she lie at the end of all this? Right. So we come back to Chapeau, and he recounts a truly horrifying story about this trickster with a false face. He gives all of the gory details. And again, this feels like it was almost lifted from seven the way Chapeau really dives into the details here. Wax extracts the information he needs from the man and gives him some money to get a hotel to sleep in. Wax has his heading, and he's headed for Lestib Square, and he's sure that he's potentially being set up to be Bleeder's prey. I had not internally made the connection between like this scene and Seven, but mm-hmm. I'm almost positive it's exactly what I was thinking of. Like That makes so much goddamn sense. And specifically, if you've seen Seven, the sort of interview with the lust, lust guy, yeah, 
Yep. Yeah. Like it, it is exactly this scene <laughs> mm-hmm. in, in feeling not in context, but right. Cause it's tough to write that exactly. It's the tough same. to try to rewrite that scene. Yeah. <laughs> Even good luck. <sighs> yeah. It's a little, little fucked. It's a little, little fucked. Well, recommend seven to everyone over the age of 18, but if you can't handle gore, do not watch it. There's not a ton um, of gore. No. Here's here's what I'll say. I'll correct. I'll correct. Read the MPAA readings, and if any of that sounds like a bad time to you, do not watch because it is the worst version of the that rating. Yeah. There's the implication of gore all of the time. Yeah. Right. It, it, they they do a really good job of really good job of making it unsettling while also not actually being that gory. There's a couple scenes. It's it's almost never the fixation of the frame to actually put the gore in the frame. However, you are still surrounded by it. And so you get the feeling of yeah. it despite it's, it's uh, weird how like, still one of my favorite movies of all time. I love it. I love seven. David Fincher rules. Yeah. He's so good. I'm curious about the name Lester Bornish and how it's perpetuated sure. itself, especially considering spook lived on and didn't like that name. And that name was born out of trauma and he established Eastern street slang as sort of a, the highborn, not highborn, but the high, high imperial language. So like anybody who understands that understands what that name means, which was, I was, I, I am abandoned, right? Lefting unborn. I am abandoned. Yeah. I find it weird that he would per- perpetuate that name for himself. Unless it's just tradition to keep the name that he lived in. But he liked the name Spook, especially considering Kelsier gave it to him Mm -hmm. because of what the name Lesterborn is meant. Yeah, I for, for the record, I agree with you by and large. I think that there is definitely something there that is it's it's odd. I wouldn't say it's completely out of place, though, because it is Lestib Square, which to me almost immediately as I think about the word cuts it into if we're thinking about the translation of Lesta Bornes, I my brain understanding Spanish which isn't the direct parallel here at all but I would say lefting I'm born is that translation to me that almost reads like it's lefting square maybe which is the abandoned left part. square what's up that's the abandoned part no well yeah maybe I yeah no you're right <laughs> that's that's worse actually I when I wrote it out uh, my brain said lefting square absolutely so it's the left square that's not what that means especially <laughs> as it's translated throughout no you're right good call yeah god I would I would do I would at the very least pose the argument or or pose the idea that it's it's like it's history that you can't get rid of necessarily especially as you are you know the the lord mistborn a sacred figure and your humble beginnings if we if we think about superheroes right like origin stories are really important and i think that in history origin stories are often revered despite their tendency to be very 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 dismal in a lot of cases yeah it's that's fair i the the other thing i think it was from last week and we never brought it up but the term spook was used to refer to as to refer to a fed essentially 
And it feels weird that they would use that term and not be talking about our boy. That's interesting. I miss that, but it naturally makes sense because Spook was the king Spook in that way, right? Hmm? Like he was the top fed. Well, I mean, sure, but they were using it like modern use of the word spook when talking about like federal agents i know i'm just connecting those two dots a little bit closer because i think that like it's not it's not just a slang translation it is a convenient as hell slang translation (laughs) because spook is the head of a government and so then in turn that slang and obviously this is devoid of the the other side of that slang which is the racial slang which is very native to earth and that's not touched upon of course and obviously we aren't throwing that around or anything like that. But I do think that it it is interesting that there is a direct parallel between the government slangs. And I don't feel like it's unreasonable. Actually, he probably got a note on it and this is probably exactly what he said to like, be like, no, it's fine. Leave me alone. I don't want to change that word. (laughs) That could be, I, I, I would believe that full, full heartedly. Okay. Before we go on to the next chapter, I do want to ask any notes that you had on the broadsheet itself inside of this section? I mean, yes. So there, there's the visitors from other worlds one, which is front and center to this page. I mean, it's also the most relevant to the story at large. I feel like there's it, it's sitting by a pool. Like it, it's so exactly the description of Hoyd at the in the epilogue, man. Of Elantris? Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly that. And it's showing up in the equivalent of a garbage rag. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Yeah. Is I want to disregard it because of that. But what it's actually doing is making me want to believe the actual garbage in real world. <laughs> because, hey, maybe this is true, too. Sanderson planted his own <laughs> UFO sighted. <laughs> inside of the newspaper (laughs) it's pretty much what it is i mean like it's exactly what it is but just need to get you an i want to believe poster on your back wall there's not that much in this one that's like based on our understanding of the world at large and actual like things that are going on contemporarily in this story there's not much like unbelievable stuff in this broadsheet comparatively, right? Yeah. Yeah. Versus the other one for sure. I I do want to bring up. I, I love I love bringing that up. I definitely wanted you to bring that up because it was like it's right there. It's so good. Some but weird I do dude crouching by a pool. Mm-hmm. Come on, man. Isn't it, isn't it a female? I don't remember. I'm, I'm reading it right now. Just a shadow, really piercing eyes, face like otherworldly, hideous, and visage struck right in my heart. Light preservation instinct. Oh, no. Never mind. I don't, it, there's no, I don't think there's any gender ascribed. Yeah. Doesn't look like it. The part of this that strikes me beyond that section oh, is kind of like just the Just a shadow, really, she said. Yeah. Okay. That's, yeah. Right. That's Narr- what I was saying. Narrating, like the, a, yeah. narrating about the, the figure. Okay. Right. And so we have this picture of like a, a masked individual on top, and that's what kind of makes it, you know, spooky, scary. But I love at the very, 
not yet wrong different spook the <laughs> how dare you the thing that i love is the a hero for all ages musical thing at the very bottom there is like so of good course <laughs> someone would turn <laughs> the story of vin and ellen into a fucking musical <laughs> i'd do it yeah i mean i i definitely would it's also interesting to see like it's the people pulling on Ellen's side and it's the inquisitors pulling on Vin's. It's just like it's a lot. I love it, but it's it's just very fun. And then we also get some details about like one of the things that I really appreciate about the broadsheets. I know that I kind of talked down about them at the beginning, the very beginning, but I actually prefer these. I think I even said 10 to none over the logbooks. Because it's a little bit more disconnected, right? Like one of the fun things to pull out of this is that we have a city name that we've heard maybe mentioned a couple of times, but New Saren is brought up and we we figure out that like the style is different. And we also from the political cartoon see this like the smacking of New Saren's butt with a paddle, which is Ellendell smacking New Saren. And we can assume that that's like taxes or something else on the on the city's behalf and yeah. like onlookers looking on. Like there's a lot of like fun little context here. That's all left up to our interpretation. And it's Ellendale as a lion and New Saren as a human baby. Yeah. So, like, right. I don't know what to make of that. Like, it's outside looking in. Outside looking in on political cartoons is really weird and cool, but weird. And I don't know what to make of it. Mm-hmm. It's hard to read. Hard to and, understand. And by that, I mean, it's like hard to. Hard to yeah, interpret. With the take. Yes, exactly what I was going for. Yeah. That's that's it. You also get like a little tiny glint of story that is, again, the Alamancer Jack in the pits of Atlantia is kind of sprinkled throughout these and like little tiny little bits. It's not the full thing. You never get the full thing. So we'll have to read the short story at some point. But I was trying to read along the, the margin of the one on the right and mm. just can't. I realized that you and I actually don't have the same copy of the book for the first time ever. You have the paperback. I do. And I have the hardbacks. And so the hardback is just one page. Is yours split over two? No. One page. Oh, okay. It's just one page. So it's just really small. Yeah. It's really tiny. Got it. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> it's really teeny tiny. <laughs> okay. I would have pulled it up for you and then screenshotted it from my Kindle. Oops. Glad I have glasses. Uh, <laughs> glad you can see. Yes, this is great. Okay. With that, we go into chapter 16. We move back to Wax, of whom has reloaded for his journey, is preparing for his next move. As he stands atop an electricity pylon in the middle of the night, Bleeder's voice invades his mind. And this is a crazy scene that is very reminiscent of Ruin from the first series to me, but there's something distinctly more intimate and sinister to her than any Chondra we've experienced before either. Obviously, she's not this foul power that we're comparing her to in the godly aspect, but there is something unique and different to Bleeder here. The way she mentions his friend, obviously referring to Wayne and all of the other small things, puts her in the background and really makes her feel diabolical. It makes her kind of feel like she was in Alloy of Law. You know what I mean? Like it makes, I don't know if you get that conspiracy brain, but like. I mean, yeah, absolutely. But at the same time, it makes me feel like there's something Beyond just being a character on the outside looking in. Yeah, oh, yes. Like, yes. This sure. is, based on that sort of idea, she would have had to have been present through his entire journey as a roughsman based on this. Like, so 
she explains it away as having done research as kind of a Chandra thing, as she says. And it's just so much more intense than that. Mm-hmm. It's and, and there's a whole diatribe on germ theory, essentially. And like that goes unaddressed by wax for whatever reason, but like germ and bacteria, like infections. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. There's a lot. Is that all germ theory is like blood? Blood isn't germ theory, but, is it? Uh, talking because we're talking about like white blood cells. Germ theory is not so much talking about white blood cells. Yeah, you're right. Sure, I that, that was the picture I yeah. got from it. I should say that's not necessarily explicitly more, more talking Sorry. about, but yeah, in, infection, yeah, and biology. Got it. Yeah, and that it's a great metaphor, but it's only a great metaphor if you understand what she's talking about. And True. Wax probably doesn't fucking understand what she's talking about because that's not, as far as I understand, like not a thing. It's not in his domain regardless, but it also is definitely her stepping outside of comprehension, his comprehension. It does feel perhaps within the realm of Chandra comprehension, though. You know what I mean? Maybe. Like, it feels like consuming bodies and everything else like that might be something that you kind of have a read on. So, Because they're all individual, like, organisms, technically. Yeah. That, that was my really thought. Good, I, that's a really good point. I hadn't considered that. As we get further in the series, I have fewer and fewer answers for the record. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, just letting you know. Uh, there, there's some other strange comments, though. Like, she, she's talking to someone else while talking to Wax. Yeah, there is that moment. Does that happen mm-hmm. out loud or in his head? In his head. That's in his head. Yep. And, well, we don't have any understanding of somebody that has the ability to speak to someone's head directly but also speak out loud <laughs> it's so weird because you would think that would just be a straight up telepathic thing and not right. have anything to do with speaking out loud to somebody else mm-hmm. at the same time but but maybe it is i don't know i don't know what to make of this there, there's some really fucky stuff going on and I don't think it has anything to do with having the power of humilergy coursing within her. Like, there is something very wrong happening here. There's something very evil happening here. Somehow. So you're past this being something that's explainable within the three. I didn't metal think it was explainable we... last time. No, I know, I know. But what I, I'm just saying that in general, that's that's where you stand on it. In general, like. I don't think it makes sense that this person is able to speak telepathically in general. And that paired with all of the extra information that she has on Wax. It is a she, right? Yeah. Paul. Yep. She's referred to as a she several times by Milan. Yep. Yep. So that, oh, that, that's also an interesting counterpoint to the one before that Milan made. Because she was acting as Bloody Tan, who is a male character. Sure. But she's been consistently referred to as she throughout. And that seems contradictory to Milan's stance that gender is attributed to the the form that they decide to take any given moment. I okay, so extracting that a little bit, I don't think that it's that. I don't think that it's like the body that they're inhabiting necessarily, although the body that they're inhabiting does kind of determine the the perceived gender, right? Right. But the 
the idea therein is that they kind of pick their own gender period because like they're they can do whatever they want you know like they can literally form whatever organs and whatever body parts and they can make you know and they can develop their complex bone systems and whatever else so they're amorphous in a in a massive way so it feels more like a a personal choice that's fair i can get behind that anyway what it seems like but yeah it does yeah yeah that's fair sorry i do i derailed myself so good where was where was i going with that oh but the Uh, fact that she's able to like understand very strangely intimate pieces of information from wax's past that he's surprised by her understanding of his life prior to this and i think if it was well-known information documented information at all he wouldn't be surprised anymore because marisy's got that covered so this feels special that it's surprising that she knows it does that make sense yes it does it it's more yeah there there there's a lot of mystery presently around palm bleeder um Mm -hmm. and i think you did a great job as to stretching it further than just this is outside of the hemologic arts this is outside of any understanding that it feels like any character should have for any reason right yeah any conceivable reason unless they were one of those little microbiomes oh are you suggesting that a chondra could shrink really small? I don't know. How small can they be? Genuinely a good question. I would assume no smaller than the size of the spikes in them. We do know that mass takes a long time to regrow from the first era, but true. Yeah. Anyway, I think that was a that was a great great point. Great conversation. Leave that one there and we'll kind of get back to some more Paul Paul Alm stuff, of course, in the future and and whatnot so he manages though to pick up on her location looking through a set of windows he sits below the windows and can make out her raspy voice from about 10 feet above as she begins to actually physically talk as opposed to speaking into his mind and she asks about lessie and why harmony never intervened in any of these various moments and why he never intervenes in moments where lives are on the line she quickly takes off towards the governor with ferrochemical speed after he attempts to engage. But I, I think that the this commentary that Brandon is pointing to is very interesting because it is often the same commentary that's leveled at anyone who believes in an omnipotent, omnipowerful God. Why does suffering exist, right? Like, why does this sort of perpetual state of, of suffering in the world exist? Why must it? So, yeah, I mean, in my opinion, it shouldn't. But to get away from my opinion, (laughs) those comments stick with him. They fuck him Mm -hmm. up for the rest of this section. Understandably. And we, we start to see this strange parallel between Wax now and Sazed post Tindwell's death in, Mm. in regards to sort of the, the, shaking of their faiths or their grounding belief systems or whatever you want to call it, whatever Sazed had, because he didn't intrinsically believe in any one faith. Like he, I wouldn't call him a man of faith, but he was, I think he's explicitly a man of faith, but not a man devoted to any one faith. That's, that's a better way to put it. Yeah, exactly that. And Tindwell's death rocked him Mm -hmm. and now we get sort of retroactively 
Lessie's death rocking wax because of this single comment from Leader. Yeah, I, so the death rocked him to begin with, right? Like it did. We, in the beginning of Alloy of Law, you know, we had two chapters basically, which at the end of it each, we had major time skips because it was wax kind of dealing with the drama and fallout. Not saying that you aren't acknowledging that, no. uh, but this resubmerges him in that feeling. It, it brings him right back into something that it feels like he'd overcome before. It, it causes this death to affect his faith. Yeah, fair point. Yep. And it, it's especially, oh, you're right. Yeah, it directly interrogates the faith more immediately. In that's the more what I'm talking about. Exactly. Yeah. Makes him question being a Pathian. I was going down the road of the sort of the emotional response. You're right, though. In the religious context, it does push him in that direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they both make their way to the governor's mansion, Wax chasing after Bleeder through the streets, although she is so fast that he can't really see her or make her out, but he knows where she's headed. Wax, of course, tries to stop her with haze killer rounds and conventional bullets, but fails. She takes out a number of guards when she makes it into the mansion before Wayne pops up among those bodies of the defeated. And he pops out a speed bubble as well. And Wax peppers the area where she's standing. I believe he says something like two dozen bullets. He's firing shotgun blasts. He's doing everything from within the speed bubble because he understands that as he shoots out, they're going to go whichever direction is blue shift, red shift happens when he can't really control it. So by focusing it all in an area, he can adjust for that by literally creating just a field of shrapnel that she has to proceed through. There's a comment Uh, he makes specifically about what is it? Something over accuracy. I do remember what you're that, talking about, which is what Steris I wanted be, to say that I couldn't remember. Steris would be proud of him for it. I'm going to find it, though, because it is good. Yeah. Using the while you're looking for that, using yeah. the haze killer round uh, was a great idea. And also, ultimately, I expected that to be the thing that would work. And it's you wanted so to be thorough. Almost did. Wanted mm-hmm. to be thorough. Yep. You wanted to be thorough. Steris would be proud. Yep. Yeah. As opposed to thor- thoroughness in, instead of accuracy. You didn't want to it? be precise. Yeah. You wanted to be thorough. It's yep. it's even written almost in her language, which I really appreciate. Exactly. Yes, 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 yes. Yes. Yes, yes. But the haze killer round almost worked. Now that I'm like thinking about it, is it haze killer and not pewter? Wasn't it something about pewter? Was there was there a round devoted to pewter arms that was like essentially like buckshot? So I do I do want to make mention here at the very least. He's using a lot of different rounds. I think in general they're almost universally referred to as a haze killer round. Not as though that like it's the umbrella title for a round meant to kill alamancers. If that makes sense, it's so yeah. Because they do talk about specifically oh, haze killer in. rounds were the ones that were like ceramic. They were the ceramic, yes, specifically. Okay. But I think that it's also kind of gen- at the very least in the way that I used it in this context. My intent is to use it generically as a. I I was just kind of as rolling with it because I misinterpreted it as specifically the ones for pewter arms, which were like super blunt force. They're also called pewter arm rounds yeah i'm actually using that incorrectly but i was using my intent when writing the notes and when doing everything was to say this is a round meant to kill an alamancer not talking about the specific round that would kill the specific type of alamancer i so, think my killer round was used in the 
in the section, though. It was. It was because he does fire specifically a haze killer round. I was just I'm explaining my context was different. I was covering them all with that as an umbrella term. So because I was just inserting my understanding of what was going on. Yep. My assumption is that that first round that hits her in the ankle is the pewter arm round. It's essentially just a fucking hammer of a shotgun shell. Right. Coming out of a revolver. <laughs> yeah. This, this is, um, this is vindication. Yes. This is all vindication. And God damn, is that so fucking cool? But I, I totally expected that to actually work. And I like that there was the little bit of sort of stress, but recovery, but a well-placed there, there's tension there. there yep. There's, there is tension, but I guess it, it just forces a sort of reapproach at the design phase of this style of round saying this almost worked. Right. Which is also something that comes into play later, which is like this clearly did some damage worth pointing out. I was actually correct in calling them haze killer rounds. And here's what the text says. Vindication out spinning the cylinder to one of the gun's special haze killer rounds, a thug shot, extra heavy slug built to deliver as much force as possible. So they are all referred to as haze killer rounds. That is something that I think has been contextualized right now for the record. And I prefer it because I would rather have kind of a blanket thing than have each round have a, each round can have a different name and would have a different name conventionally. Those can pop I, up when necessary, but I this is nice because I'd like to call it a haze killer chamber. That yeah, that's just the yes. I understand what you're saying. He's firing the haze killer chamber, but he's also generically referring to one of sixteen different he's, potential bullets well, as a haze he, killer round. He's designed to kill alamancers. He's turning to the haze killer chamber and shooting a mm-hmm. thug shot that would be better but what i'm saying is i know i know i know as opposed I to know. giving us 16 different types of bullets <laughs> to try to, to track and remember of them, but well yeah because you don't need to shoot an aluminum misting with anything but a regular bullet or most of the mistings <laughs> most of them most of, yeah <laughs> i know i know I, I guess my point is i like haze killer because the connotation of a haze killer round is that it is a specialty type of ammunition meant to deal with allomancers. And that's great because haze killers before were people who were specifically trained to use non-metal weapons to deal with allomancers. So it's the same it's the same continuation of language from book to book, which yeah. is why I like it. But I think within that it's important that there's some specificity, which is where I think it's great that we do get you know, that this is a thug shot and that later, you know, we have a new thing that's coming out from Renette and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fair. So it does, it does perpetuate the sort of idea that Renette is a vendor in Borderlands. So it does (laughs) perpetuate the idea that she is a crafter of some sort in Borderlands, a hundred percent. The haze killer vendor. Mm hmm. Totally. I, I do want a cool name for a weapons dealer. It's pretty, pretty sick. I mean, Hayes killer in general is just a great, it's great nomenclature. Love it. Especially inside of the context of Mistborn. It's awesome. I do want to mention at the very least, of course, that he tries to get her with the syringe and fails throwing it outside of the speed bubble. She makes it to innate, but because of Drim's sacrifice and taking what's, 
perceivably, perceptively, like the last bullet in the chamber, the governor remains alive. What do you think about that little end to this that portion? I mean, there was a lot happening. It went yes. very, very quickly, and it was hard being somebody who doesn't do a good job of visualizing things. It was muddy for me to understand like how far away everything was. And like, I know there was like a 10 foot distance between the edge of the bubble and where bleeder was. And I didn't quite understand how like throwing a syringe at range was going to work. It was, I understood that there was a lot of tension, but I didn't quite grasp what was actually happening. I think the syringe was a long shot by all intents and purposes. I, I, I don't think, think it that the shouldn't syringe... have ha- like, I didn't think it made sense, but it, it increased tension. I could, I could yeah. understand how like it made the tension go up, but I, I, I couldn't get behind it because I didn't think that the actual like mechanics of it made sense. It felt like a Hail Mary from, but from my perspective, but it also, the, how are you going to plunge it? Agreed. Yep. <clears throat> I do. I do want to throw into that mix as well that regardless of being able to plunge it or not, this feels more like a reminder to us that the syringe exists to begin with than it does a necessity to the action. Well, he does use it. it, but he's got one more. But yeah, yeah. I, I totally get it. I totally get it. My my no counter argument, really. I, it feels like a Hail Mary does it it adds a little bit of tension like you're saying but it does feel like the dumb move here so to speak mm-hmm. versus figuring out a way to mention the the syringe to us any other way right like maybe he checks his pockets on the way in like he's he's double checking to make sure he hasn't broken it or fumbled it and his night flying around and that's enough of a reminder for us to know that it's there later when he you know double checks drim to make sure that he's legit yeah i don't know this, also, this can was, you imagine if Drim was a Chandra and he just like murdered a random Chandra? That'd be fucking hilarious. <laughs> Come on, dude. That'd yeah. be really funny. I think a little bit more than that. But of the last couple books, this was this mm-hmm. this section that this like question is encompassing mm-hmm. was the the least visually clear for me. It felt- I guess this mm. this question in the previous one between like. Yeah. Him talking to Bleeder and then being like 10 feet away from her and like speaking audibly at, after a certain point in the conversation and then like interacting with the speed bubble. It, it all got very muddy for me. For I think especially reason. in audiobook form, it's not. Well, it's not even just audiobook form. Just, no, I just, know. I, I'm just saying especially yeah. in audiobook. It's not it's not particularly. That's clear. true. Um, it's true. Yeah, but this it felt like something that required visual interpretation of what was happening, and I I just couldn't get there. Yeah, I I can agree with that. This is a very quick chapter that feels like it should have been a little bit longer in different moments. I do appreciate. I I think you made mention of it the ferrochemical speed and the speed bubble interaction, like just in general, mm-hmm. the idea that it puts them on the same plane of of speed. Yeah, it, basically, it, it makes for questions of what other ferrochemical slash alamant interactions exist 
and how those can negate each other or complement each other or whatever it might be. I'd like to take some time and go through them and like really analyze that. And I'm sure we could find some natural interactions because that this mm-hmm. feels very natural. I just never right. thought about it. Consider it. it. It also I, what it what it did make me think about weirdly. If you had two people that had Wayne's ability to create speed bubbles and you had overlapping speed bubbles, would you have somebody in the sort of Venn diagram center looking at people in the not Venn diagram center moving normally in the same way that somebody in the normal speed bubble looks at somebody outside normally? Like, does it stack? Right. I understand. You'd think it'd have to. I don't think it does. And the reason that I do, I would have to go back and double check, but I think alloy of law, there was a, there was a, some, there was an assumption that this could be done with chromium bubbles, but a, they said it would be way too expensive to like, or bend alloy, sorry, that, that the thefts of the train could be happening with a series of bubbles, right? But it would be too expensive to maintain that continuous line, which just makes me believe that it would create a continuous line. Well, the, the fact that chromium is bubbles still a question. negate, Bend alloy. Bend alloy? Or, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bend alloy and chromium yeah. negate each other, which means they interact with each other in a constructive right. way. Or I guess technically you could call it destructive here. But in that same logic, if you added another bend alloy bubble, it'd be constructive and create a pocket of double or be exponential bend alloy <laughs> that becomes so interesting to think about mm-hmm. it just kind of i'm also thinking about it, it, savantism as it as it relates like could you as a bend alloy savant create a bubble that isn't circled around yourself like let's say you instead put a bubble somewhere else and you move it along and so you have to predict the path of where someone's going to go but you're going to give them basically a mobile bubble for as long as your brain can you know perpetuate so- and imagine it there, there are a lot of complications that come into this that I love. There's a lot of yeah. complications. I still don't like the fact that this is a metal that somebody is burning and it doesn't mm-hmm. follow them around. It's geographically planted. Yes. That doesn't make sense to me. Considering we're in an established universe with a moving planet. There is an explanation for this. It's not worth worth running it up the flag right now to double check, but there is like a legitimate conversation that happened around this and a very great explanation, a very great it's outside of text because this isn't a question that you would necessarily answer in text. They have a brief, I think in the last book, they have a brief conversation about it. Not that big of a thing. Why it doesn't move on a why it moves on the train versus or not why it yeah, doesn't move on the train, exactly. something like that. Right. So there there is something there, but not worth bringing up right now. I'll, okay. I'll send it to you. I'll clip it and send it to you. But I'd like that because it, yeah. it does bother me. <laughs> deeply. I understand. I get it. So going back to the story here, what do you think of Innate's decision to stay in the city despite the obvious immediate threat to his life and the general instability of Ellendell on the whole? It, it feels very the captain goes down with the ship in the mm. moment. But cynically, I can't help believe that there's motivation externally through the bribery connections that we know exist through later on in this section and we're 
we believe exist earlier, but like we know they exist later. I don't know. It feels noble in the moment, but I can't help but think that there's more to it than that. It definitely does feel noble in the moment, but it doesn't. It's like lacking sense. And it kind of feels like he's been lacking sense a lot of the time here. But especially considering we know him to not be a noble person in the end, which is what also kind of throws a wrench into it. Yeah. Like he's not a good guy as we find out in a little bit. So that's that's another good question. Is is he still a good guy? Corrupt but good. Cynically, what government official isn't like this? I mean, there are probably a number that aren't like this, but I doubt know, it. Yeah, I, I I understand where you're going. <laughs> what what would you say? I said I doubt it. I bet there are a number. I can think of at least two off the top of my head that I would put into that camp. We're not going to say names, but I understand. And <laughs> there, the the cynical there side are several makes sense. Hundred government officials in the u.s and i came up with two (laughs) there are several thousand yeah state government exists buddy it should be stronger that said sorry (laughs) that said i think i think it's really important to recognize that there is a potential for him to either be kind of feigning some sort of pride and like loyalty to the people or is he like real about it and i think that we can really have that conversation fully when we get into the conversation between him and sort of the council at large as it were, the people that he surrounds himself with. But mm-hmm. right now, it's kind of posed to us as a question. Yeah. So we end the chapter with Wax inspecting the scene, and he finds words scrawled on the wall in blood. Rip out his tongue to stop the lies. I stab out his eyes to hide from his gaze. You will be free. Super fucked. A, I want this as a Halloween decoration. Uh, okay. B, I could see this being a Death Grips lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what. I'm a little bummed that this doesn't follow the rule of three properly. It doesn't. Um, but it they, does. It does feel mention, unsatisfying. They mention that it's unfinished. They feel it's unfinished. Yeah. And I think that's why, because it doesn't sound like a good poem it's so it's so close to something but it's it's just like missing that beat Mm -hmm. you know yeah but doesn't it doesn't it feel death grips like in it does feel death grips like (laughs) i I don't disagree at all it also feels like something that would be found in a bathroom in the middle school of stranger things you know that they would run into it would set off a season it's very it's very king-esque in a Mm -hmm. in a big way that's fair yeah so yeah, I totally agree. I I like it. I dig it. I do feel like it's missing a beat and it does feel kind of death gripsy. Feels like a lot of things. So I, I a couple days ago started playing death grips in the kitchen. Well, I thought Kevin oh. was in the I, I thought she was in the shower. <laughs> I thought she was like getting ready for whatever. And I was just rocking out to death grips while I was making lunch. <laughs> she was definitely on the top of the stairs looking down at me. <laughs> What the fuck are you doing? I'm, I'm singing along to get got. <laughs> oh, yeah, that'll do it. That'll do it. That'll make you seem like a sane person. What was I going to say? Read Death Grips. Oh, was this during the was this before or after the Rings of Power binge-a-thon that we did? Before. This was like two weeks before. ago or something. Okay. 
Oh, okay. All right. I was just checking. I was like, if it was the sick day, that would just be extra funny to me. (laughs) Comes out of the bathroom finally. (laughs) Death grips are playing and she's like, what the fuck is this? Goes back to the bathroom. I Uh, have such a good video of the death grips at Riot Fest. Oh, you mean all black? You could have just filmed the ground (laughs) with the song playing in the background. Such a good video. Super sweet. Really great. Cross or not cross. Jimmy got his his battle jacket defaced. Mm -hmm. I punched a dude in the face. Yeah. You did you bust your toe at Death Grips too? Was Uh, that? Maybe. I don't don't, know that it was. So we move into chapter 15 and we hop over to Wayne's perspective for this quick chapter. And he gives us a little insight on the way that he thinks about class and language, particularly with the crapper. He stumbles out of the bathroom and back to Wax, who sent a late night messenger to Renette for something that we'll get to a little bit later here. It's interesting to me that the kids inside of the story are used here so frequently as messengers and spies. It feels like we're just begging to have a child be murdered and like strung up by his shoes. Yeah. You know, like that's I mean, that's a consideration for sure. But more directly on this section, there there's something unique about Wayne's pseudo pseudo intellectual take on things in his commentaries. They're funny and they're fun. And at the same time, they're actually insightful to a certain degree, which is it feels weird that I'm actually thinking about some of the points that he's making while also actively laughing at the points that he's making. You know? Mm-hmm. There's something there's something really special about the way that Wayne is written. Yeah. He he captures a tone that otherwise feels inaccessible in a lot of other authors' hands. There's some like it's almost it's almost satirical. I I don't even know like what it, how exactly to frame it and why I like Wayne as much as I do. Because he breaks so many molds for characters, and it feels like he's a cartoon inserted into the middle of a noir drama. And like, he's a reverse Michael Jordan. Yes, fair enough. <laughs> Inside of Space Jam, yeah, fair point. I was going to go back to the <laughs> the constant on the show at this point. The good old Polonic strippers and a comedians answer, which is that like. Sometimes you can just believe a character because you need to, because you need that kind of release valve in the way that they release tension. And but there's also something so honest about a, the way that he approaches a lot of this stuff. I got into a conversation like, the other once day. Once in a while, um, a stripper will come out and do a tight five. Exactly, and then the comedian <laughs> goes back, and that's that's exactly what happens in Wayne's. Yeah, no, you're right. It's it, that's how all these books work. Clearly, Brandon Sanderson wrote strippers into the story. Nobody um, wants to. Nobody wants the comedians to do a poll routine, though. Nobody wants the comedian. No, yeah, they're they're not built that way. You know what I mean? <laughs> the polls aren't built that way. Also true. <laughs> that's a completely different issue. No, but I got I got into a conversation this week with one of our patrons about it and a friend of the show, of course, about Wayne in particular and like this conversation about like, is he conventionally intelligent? No, he's he's not conventional. Or sorry, is he a book versus street smarts? Right. So he is not he is totally a child of the streets. He does not have the education or upbringing that a lot of people have, but he is very insightful. He does have 
some naturally acquired intelligence that's happened through the nature of his life. So I wouldn't call him dumb by any I'd stretch. Say, I'd say he's more than conventionally intelligent. I was saying conventional intelligence, which is a little bit. I, I, I mean, like his intelligence is above that of a standard street smarts kind of character. He bridges gaps that you wouldn't expect to be bridged by somebody just observationally taking. Yeah. Yes, for sure. This was in a little bit of a different context where we are. Someone had posited that he might have a, a disorder of some kind. And I was more talking down about the disorder angle, if that makes sense, but okay. in the same sort of way. And then we talked about educational differences between, you know, why does, why do Steris and Wayne kind of pick on each other? Why does Wayne specifically target Steris? And that was kind of some of that basis. So, mm-hmm. yeah, like you said, he is, Higher IQ, higher average IQ, but doesn't necessarily have the utility of a larger education at his grasp. But he can make a lot of things happen. Would I wouldn't call him brilliant, but I would say he's intelligent for sure. Yeah. Okay. His flashes of brilliance, maybe, but mm-hmm. yeah. And I mean, maybe maybe the intention is everything that he says and acts on is strictly based on his observation, which seems to be primarily the case. That's how all of his accents come to be, all of his mannerisms. Most most of his understanding is observational understanding. It, It just feels so complete that you would assume that some of it would have would need to be external, but maybe it's not. Maybe he's just experienced enough and he absorbs all of it. I think there's a good chance of that, right? We know he's been a a roughs lawman since he was 16. Yeah, right. He's he's in the tag along. Traditional like education isn't a thing for him. So unless it's before that point. If that's the case, that doesn't stick that well. So, not like Marisy, not like Steris. Right, right. Not at all like either of them because they're they just have a completely different upbringing. So, mm-hmm. did Steris have educational upbringing mentioned? Yes, Steris was. Yeah, I mean, she was educated inside of society. Like she was, the wealth that enabled her family enabled her education. Without question. I, di- I didn't remember if she went to like a college like Marisi did. Oh, sure. Yeah. I, I'm not certain about college. I'm thinking even a high school education. Okay. Fair. Which is more my point with Wayne is comparatively is of of a similar scholastic background of what I would assume is a, a late junior high, early high school dropout. Mm-hmm. So that was more my context on that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. There's also a note about how they managed to connect the pieces of the previous poem and how Wax has been played to be more at odds with the populace than he expected. There's there's a lot of kind of unwieldy sort of things that he hasn't realized that he's being manipulated here, which I think is great for us to talk about. Yeah, there we're we're getting into this really cool sort of puppet master scenario with Bleeder where mm-hmm. she's the prey but she's also the puppet master and i can't help but love the unsettling feeling that it imposes 
upon wax or that that that's imposed upon wax through that sort of realization throughout this entire section of like the shifting of understanding of where this person is compared to himself and it suddenly yeah. feels underneath them it it starts to in its own way right like and and there's this this other sort of awareness that you're talking about that these characters have and or lack at different times, right? Because we're locked into their perspectives that I think really comes to fruition as we start to think about the parallels here between book one and book one, right? And I think to some degree, Ed Warren forces that conversation. So I think we'll hold until the end of this chapter to discuss that. But that's where the parallels start to become and the invert parallels start to become really, really fascinating. So we'll save that for when we get to Ed Warren, but... Sounds good. Milan is left to assemble or I guess digest the remains of one of the women of whom were protecting the governor to blend in as someone around him in the future to protect him from future strikes against him. Reminded of a couple of the rules of Condra here and given a couple of parameters around their behavior that we may have otherwise forgotten and or have been completely unaware of because if this is your first entry into Mistborn, you know, that's that's what they're here for. Milan also kind of hits on Wayne and he claims to be taken, which we know to really not be true unless it's just locked in his own mind that way. Harmony also gives the okay for Wax to go and visit the Condor homeland here, which is just another small note that gets tucked inside of the whole thing from Milan in which they are obviously speaking to each other. Yeah. A reminder about the hair like that. That's something that I know I mentioned and we had a discussion about. In we did hero of ages when it came up, mm-hmm. but it, it it went kind of un, unaddressed until now, but now we actually get the mechanics of it. And I think we kind of did a little bit, but it was a little bit that this made it more clear. So that was good. I, I liked that. And it gives this potential gotcha for a Chandra in a rush to try to catch him. In that way. So, like, that's cool. Getting the mechanics and getting a, a failure point. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't, I don't mind that he considers himself to be taken, even if it's not true. Even if, even if he's strictly alone in that assumption of himself. And it, it gets to maybe, like, maybe there'd be awkward or problematic interactions between himself and Renette directly but for him in this scenario where he's not near Renette for him to consider himself taken I don't see a problem in that and it creates a really comedic scenario between him and Milan where it feels funny that Milan would be attracted to Wayne in the slightest but it makes it even funnier that Wayne pushes against that by feel, by by treating himself as taken. And I don't think anybody's hurt by this. No, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess it's it's not necessarily that there are any like negative connotations or that like there's any harm done. It's it's very much like a no harm, no foul kind of thing. But it does it does at the very least point to maybe it's not that Wayne's an unreliable narrator. It's that maybe he's not his hmm, how to how to 
his perception is so warped that it it's hard for us to for it to be predictable even right but it that's the thing it's warped but it's not unpredictable it's warped but consistent kinda i mean mostly but i'm not saying that this is necessarily inconsistent in this moment he has said that there's one woman for him and that's Renette in the previous book. Like I, I totally get that. And I understand that perspective. I mean, I, I guess that's where I'm coming from is that he is not being in any way inconsistent and on like in no way is he unpredictable. It's just odd and detached from reality. But there is a rule set that his mind is following. And that extends into his conversations with Burnett later. Yeah. Okay. It's not healthy and it's not necessarily good, but it's not hurtful. I guess is where you raise a fair point, especially when you consider the fact that when we're inside of his perspective, it does feel like we have a rule set from the outside, purely the outside looking in from even from, from wax's perspective. He knows strictly because of exposure over time that this exists. Marisi, for instance, doesn't and is constantly questioning, you know, some of Wax's decisions and actions and or sorry, not Wax, Wayne's decisions and actions. And Wax is generally reaffirming them as like, no, 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 this is the way he'll do it. And it will work out because he's predictable, like you're saying. But he's he is he seems like a wild card, but is in fact a joker. Yeah. or a jester or whatever the fuck else he's not rooted in reality but that doesn't mm-hmm. mean he's not rooted in anything like you're he, right his his perception is rooted it's just not in the same reality as everybody else lives within you're totally correct he's consistent mm-hmm. and that makes that makes wayne such a cool character character to explore it- it totally does. It It's just so interesting to me that it is so outside of the normal realm. You know what I mean? Like it is, it is, this is very unusual to have such a. Do you expect anything else from a hard fantasy author though? Absolutely. What, what do you mean? I mean, he's building a rule set for his own character that breaks the social norm. He's not allowing can, his character to be ruleless. No, I I under I understand the direction in which you're going with kind of the the question and the prompt. I guess my I love Wayne to death. He's not a relatable character in a lot of ways. Like he he feels this is what we were kind of talking about earlier. There there are moments where he feels like a cartoon or a caricature, but we still love him to death because it like right. He just is right. So, so I guess that's what I'm trying to pick at. It's not guess, that it's not I that I think that he's inconsistent or that I don't think that like, you know, I, I understand where Brandon can come from because of the way, like you're saying, he can write strict systems. And so creating a character that adheres to a strict system works. I don't I'm not disbelieving any of that. As a matter of fact, I agree with a lot of it. Just trying to work I, out the rest. I guess where I'm coming from in this sort of conversation is that. I would expect Wayne to be written as this wacky, zany, off the wall, doesn't need an explanation character. In, sure. In reality, every single action he takes is rooted in something that we're not necessarily privy to. Yes, because of his lived experience. Right. 
which is what he's also constantly espousing is he's trying to give us more and more and more of that lived experience. So I, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm sure there are examples that would push against this, but it, it just feels like he's a very well planned character. Start oh, I love Wayne. I, I don't, but, I don't but, believe you're also trying. No, you're also not no, telling no. me that I don't love Wayne. So. No, it's just he comes across as chaos and I don't think he's necessarily bouncing off the walls as much as right. he seems to be at face value. Yes, that's a great way of putting it. I definitely agree. We move to a conversation between Ed Warren and Wax and who boy, what a conversation it is. What do you make this moment and his uncle's political endeavors? What new things are you taking from this about the set with an S.E.? T the set <laughs> and their goals. What about his companions or his not his companions? What about his comparisons to the final empire? This is really hard. Is it in any way fair to judge him against his supposed other members of the set? And in, 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 in like, do we have to judge his actions alone? Because comparatively, if he's to be believed, he's the one acting reasonably within this organization. And it's still fucked up, but it's not it's not the malicious, pure evil that we're pre- like presented with to begin with. It's much more complex. It's much more rooted. And I mean, if we take him at his word... He's the one kind of holding the organization back from truly unhinged shit. There's a question there. Should we be taking him at his word, though? That's that's that's, that's a completely question. different question. And like, it, yeah, well, I think it addresses it addresses some of that, which is like, how far can we believe this guy? I mean, the guy faked his own death to like escape. Have, but there is a lot to ask about the set. The fact that and he's I don't working disagree with those sides with and a, like and and. The fact that he is accepting any sort of collaboration between him and Wax tells me that he's at least partially truthful here. Is it is it a collaboration or is it a belief that his nephew can be corrupted? We know contextually that Bleeder is working with the set. Adjacent to, I think, is the way that it's almost phrased, but yes. You know, the context here makes it seem that it's more than adjacent. Like it's not a part of their plans, but it does work in their advantage. Yeah. They're not stopping, but they're not, you know. At the very least, this feels like the syndicate. Sure. And the Duke of Hands. And that sort of structure. Where there's autonomy. But still somebody, somebody above ultimately pulling the strings, even if they're not in control. Yeah, I, I see that. And I, I think that you're, I don't know if we have such an explicit, the, the, as it's been explained, the organization feels a little bit more democratic than most mm. crime syndicates are, if that makes sense. It seems That's more true. like it's a group of people with economic stake in society and otherwise and in, in wanting to push it forward. And there are a lot of parallels that happen between here and the final empire. And he specifically draws a lot of lines between 
the idea of rebelling and overthrowing a government and everything else being important and crucial to rising up against, you know, odds. And this is where I think we start to get to an interesting point where it feels like a almost asymmetrical look at the same kind of story, if that makes sense. So last time we were looking from the rebels and trying to kill the cops. And this time we're looking from the cops to the rebels, but the rebels are bad and the cops are good. Like, and it's all based on perspective. And I think that's what the story does such a good job on. And that's also why I want to try to distance a little bit from the bleeder to Ed Warren connection, just a smidge because bleeder feels like a source of truth in a way, like feels like objectively they have less of a stake in that game. If that makes sense. Mm hmm versus these two organizations these two systems and structures that are fighting each other so okay bleeder bleeder is fighting for like almost a a third party truth it feels like right yeah i i agree with you entirely with the one exception being that this is a a parallel to what we were fighting against in the first trilogy because i don't think it's a two-sided fight. And I think what we saw was the people in the first trilogy and comparatively, we would be more in the, in the camp of the mid-level obligators and inquisitors. And that's still not a good point of view to hold in that first trilogy, but it's not the same as holding the point of view of the Lord ruler, for example. Fair point. Fair point. Yeah. Any anything that I would say would be such a minor adjustment that I don't think it's worth interrogating on that perspective. But I do agree with you. But it's it's also as close as we can get, right? Because there isn't really an emperor. The governor isn't the emperor. He's as we learn in just a little bit here. He's God, just a fucking dude <laughs> for the most part. Like yeah, basically trying to do the best that he can but the best that he can is politically motivated and manipulated and there's a lot of other shit there but yeah man anything else on Edborn? anything else you wanted to say about the dude about the man about the bro i don't think so at the moment i think that okay. that's it cool all right with that we get into chapter 18 we return to this chapter with marisy Combs sitting in on Governor Nate having a meeting with his closest advisors. There are some interesting observations she makes here about the groups of men, but mostly she just sits back and lets the show happen in front of her. She comments even that she'd always desired to be in the room where it happens. The room where it happens. The room. If you, you still haven't listened to Hamilton, it's all right. All right. But had never been lucky enough to do so. What do you make of this entire kind of scene and sequence from a political standpoint for Marisi and the way that she's changed since before we met her, but at the very least an interesting, you know, parallel to her upbringing? In this section as a whole, mm-hmm. generally, but also this chapter specifically, we get a lot of internal vulnerability from Marisi and she finds herself within her role, like how she finds herself within her role. And that comes basically through her, her connection to wax, despite her 
diligence in schooling and integrity and whatever else she's close to wax that more than likely gets her this position right now based on her perception and context. That's where we're at and what, whether or not she deserves it or if she's the right fit, it's true, but it's hard to argue that that's the case. And I, I think it's fitting given that, that she's faced with this meeting of a man that she knows to be politically corrupt and like facing these feelings of not necessarily inadequacy, but something close to it of deservedness and earning her spot through past corruption, I guess it's lesser, but it's still, it's still government corruption. And that is, that is a mirror that she's facing down when looking at innate. And I I don't think that irony is lost on her. And uh, I believe given this, she would make a great leader due to her interest and her aptitude and her, like her integrity pushing against this idea that she gained this position, the, the sickness that she feels in her stomach when she's like addressing the idea that she got this position through wax as opposed to her internal aptitude. Yeah. I, I do want to, you know, it's it's not exactly it's not exactly nepotism, but it's like a side effect of nepotism. You know what I mean? Like that's that's how this placement happened. It's it's an oligarchical problem. It's a the the reason it's, that you end up in these rooms is not because of capability. It's because of who you know. You know, it's more almost or less reverse or who you are. Nepotism. How's it reverse nepotism? Because it, it's not hiring because you know because you're close to this person in the in, in the industry it's you know this person and we want to keep an eye on this person sure uh, yeah like, i wouldn't equate so that to it, nepotism it, i understand exactly what you're saying wouldn't equate it to nepotism but i i definitely get it but it follows the um, same rules as nepotism and it's hard to say it's reverse it's it's an adjacent it's, network it's not yeah yeah i understand i understand where you're going the, the core point nepotism generally being within the family. So I was stretching nepotism to include, but I think um, nepotism technically doesn't have to do with familial ties. It just has to do with personal connection. So I think, I think friendships technically fall under nepotism. Ooh, friendships do technically fall under nepotism, but it is first and foremost described as favoritism on family relatives so all right fine i'll give it to you yeah okay then in in which case i can understand your your description that makes sense to me i think there's a specific word for the people that you know leading to that like i think there's a more specific phrase i don't remember it so we'll we'll pass by but yeah it, it, it is a form of nepotism in this moment and circumstance that has led it to her and it is also a there's a moment of acknowledgement that they can use her nepisodic position to backward spy nepotistic nepotistic nepisodic i don't know i was thinking (laughs) despot and despotic which is where i went but yeah Mm -hmm. nepotistic is probably correct anyway point being that they can like reverse spy is what you're suggesting so because of 
the sort of nepotism, they can use that against her and kind of wield that power backwards. Right. Down the train. Yeah. It's just okay. whether or not like the, the irony is that she's not, if that was the case, she's not aware. Mm-hmm. And the connection isn't as obvious in the, like the position that she's in. It's not reverse nepotism, but it's something like that, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's using her own power against her. I mean, there, there are a number of different ways to probably pin this this tail on the donkey a lot of tails that are great options it's just a matter of which is the you know the right one which is our best fit so yeah i i love this moment i love the the sort of solo moment there but eventually he sends the others away and gives marisi an important duty to hand off a call for martial law to be enacted in the city and for oradell to handle it i love the parallels that this week poses to us as she leaves with the order and and looks out at the city while waiting for her carriage. There's this note about the survivor long ago pushing a city to a similar brink, but then channeling it into a rebellion. It's a fun little thing to contemplate from Marisi's perspective and to think about how these first books in their respective trilogies are these like asymmetrical pieces against each other. And I think in particular, considering the way that the cities are positioned and the people and the POVs that we're seeing are on opposite sides, while not perfectly inverted sides or positions of power, makes for a very interesting conversation about handling people. Yeah. Because what's the end result here? You quell the rebellion and keep the status quo during the Industrial Revolution. We know that that's not a fucking good thing for people in the long <laughs> run. You know, like we know the outcome of that as people. So, yeah, what do, what do you think? I think that what what I talked about at the beginning of this episode with Marisi becoming like a character that I really appreciated. This is that section. Mm-hmm. This is where she becomes a character that I want to inhabit rather than one that we need to inhabit or one that gives extra textual convert like extra textual context to the recent history of the world. Like she was a utility for most, I'd say the entirety of the first book and most of this book up until now. And now she's becoming a standalone, interesting character in and of it, in and of herself. And maybe that happened before, but this is when I felt it, you know, does that mm-hmm. make sense? It does. It does. This is when it really clicks that she becomes something for you at the very least. This is where she becomes something more. This is where it becomes like, I want more of that perspective. I want to dig deeper into the way that Marisi thinks about the world, which I totally get. I think that that's something that alloy of law, she kind of feels like a tool in the tool belt. And so it's a tool for the story to progress itself. And here now, it's become something different and she's grown in a way where like you want to spend time with her and because the way the story is written, we don't get a whole lot of time in general. Like everything is kind of a tool to get us to the end, you know, and a tool to solve the problem or the mystery. Um, she, she felt like a stand in for the log books, frankly. I disagree with that personally, but I understand, but yeah, I understand perspective as we had talked about it before. it wasn't necessarily her 
perspective entirely, but like she was constantly giving extra information that she learned in, in school. And it was, it was her speaking nervously and it was very important for us to learn it, but there was no real good way to share that information for us, like to us. So leaning on this nervous character that just spewed information was effectively what we got instead of the logbooks. That's where I'm coming from, I guess. Personal preference. I would take a nervous character giving me something versus a logbook any day of the week. Because it's in POV. It's in perspective. It's it's potentially It wasn't always jaded. in perspective, though. It was sometimes Marisy, like muttering to herself in Wayne's perspective or in Wax's perspective. It's still in a perspective. I guess that's that's my point is it's in the story. It's submerged in the moment. There are a couple of times that it can make sense. Like I said, it's a taste thing, but that is where I land on sort of the taste spectrum, which is character delivery yields everything in the long run. Like characters are the reason that we focus on the story. That's why we love the story. Systems are cool, but systems Without a character, you may as well be reading a wiki. Yeah, but there's a character. We just don't know who they are. We did know who they were. Sometimes. I mean, we in, even in the end, I don't think that... Yeah, it's the, not, not, worth, not worth the conversation in the immediate moment. But we just land on different sides of this coin. I so, like logbooks. I think logbooks and, I like and extra textual stuff of- can be useful. Emotion. <laughs> combat devoid of emotion yields. It it creates something cinematic. It is devoid of description that imparts. We're so you can have combat that gives emotion that is just as cinematic. That's my point. What how is do you, tough? How do, you do that in film. Expression, facial expression, exhaustion, physical exhaustion. Like you do it all the time. Not everyone's great at it. That's what makes some of the fights in Game of Thrones as good as they are, is because you you feel what the character's feeling in the moment when they swing the sword and it's the last thing that they could do. You feel the exhaustion as, who is it, Recon is running those, away. Those are, those are and, all still physical descriptions. That no, you see the done. looks on their face. That's still a physical description. Okay, but... Brandon does not explain the looks on people's faces as they're doing things and the extent the to which people's faces. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's my fucking point. Like, I don't think you're comparing things fairly whatsoever. You're nitpicking to try to get to making it make sense. I'm trying to get at you, but I do. Mm-hmm. I, I do like that combat. All I'm saying is, is when Sanderson is eventually adapted, we'll get more emotion in the adaptation than we did in the original text. hundred percent. I will complain about it. You shouldn't. It will yield better <laughs> scenes. I'm fucking with you. <laughs> I'm fucking with you entirely. Friends, right. friends at home, send help. All right. She does leave this situation, of course, and goes and calls for a carriage to call her home. It's going to take a little bit of time for her to find a carriage, according to the carriage caller, because all of them are out in different places summoning people, as we found out earlier from Wax. Like, this is. A very reasonable thing to be going on in a night like this with everything that's happening. So she heads back into the mansion and she finds some dirt on the governor. It turns out that, as suspected, he truly is a corrupt man owing favors to many others in the cities. As we've talked about a little bit previously, 
as tracking those as well as he's tracking those of whom owe him a favor. What do you think about this? That's it's just embarrassing letters between him and several notable people around town. It's all romantic. Nothing more. Don't dwell on it. Push it aside. No harm, no foul. <laughs> Is that how it works? <laughs> That's how it works. Don't dwell on the slander. No. It's so cool to see her go through this like sleuthing. It just feels so quick and so obvious. And so, well, I have lost Crossland. Are you back? Continue. So obvious. Yep. It, it, it feels. Cut, 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 just in case. Compared just to other things the, within this edit, sorry. story, it, yeah. it just feels a little forced. You feel it's forced? Yeah, I did. I would have preferred I would have preferred her to stumble upon the information and the, the notebook of information as opposed to making a a fake difficult to understand or difficult to to catch series of tests to find the hidden treasure trove of information, you know, like the, the scuffs on the, on the books and the hidden key and the zero explanation to suddenly finding the, the hidden vault. Like it just felt too forced into very quickly finding this hidden Sure, yeah. A little bit BBC Sherlock, which is that we didn't really see the thing, so we don't really know why in moments. I mean, I love BBC Sherlock, don't get me wrong, folks. But at the same time, when you don't have the pieces to set up the puzzle, it's not really solving a puzzle. Which is, again, I think what we've kind of gotten at in this episode a little bit, which is this is written almost to feel like a murder mystery in moments, or like a mystery that we're supposed to be solving and piecing together. However, we're not being given the pieces to assemble so it makes it very hard for us to even consider because basically what we're what we're given instead, like in this moment, is the sort of trope of the room in which, you know, you find the clues. There's a vault uh, under so the just, rug and you found the key. Yeah. It just it's it convoluted. Would've, it would have made more sense for Marisy's character to at least stumble upon something somehow that leads accidentally, her that, that yeah. leads her to where she yeah. needs to be but instead but she, she just like earlier sneaks that like into you know. the, she sneaks into the office and forces her way into finding a secret compartment and like it just didn't feel earned and felt really yeah. out it felt like it was there out of necessity as opposed to being there out of mechanics like it was something there to feed the plot. Not even. I mean, it was, but yeah. But uh, I guess. It's it's furthering a plot point. Re- I mean, regardless, I, I guess it's, it's my giving point was. Her the hint, like it's giving her the, the, the proof as opposed to. Well, it's not even that. It? She has, what's it called? Not contextual, but circumstantial proof of her supposition and this gives her slightly better circumstantial proof it doesn't even give her hard proof because it's still written in kind of code this is hard proof 
acquired by ill-begotten means. Like this is not it's not hard proof because it's not saying I'm doing this for you for this favor. It's per our previous conversation, the funds are on its way. It, it's it still requires lining up previous supposed accusations but there's nothing technically tying him down to wrongdoing it's still circumstantial i guess that's something that ardell gets into a little bit more in the next chapter right like it is there are still circumstantial points but i don't think that's hmm. i guess it's not evidence but it's not hard evidence I'm not an Ellendale lawyer and would never pretend to be one on the internet for money. But uh, that that's I actually a point don't know any Ellendale lawyers. Marisi makes that point and, and says that joke. it's not hard proof. I, I know. I was I was just making a joke. I know. <laughs> I was no one's no one's an Ellendale lawyer. No one could pretend to be one on the internet. And can pretend to be one on the internet. Well, I guess everyone could pretend to be one. I don't pretend to be one on the internet. Copying the Tim Ferriss line. But all that said, I personally, I don't have an issue with the evidence itself. She does say that it's a little bit, it's circumstantial at best. But I do think there's a bit of a plot contrivance here as far as it comes to discovering and getting to the information. This yeah. is, that just is what it is, I think. I don't know if there's a better way to break it down. Like there's not, there's just a point of criticism. Like this is, it just feels out of nowhere. It is. I, I don't, I don't know if there's any other way to put it because it's not as though, again, going back to like some writing one oh one, not writing one oh one, but some like general writing rules is setups and payoffs of which I know Brandon talks a lot about, but like this scene in which we get this information is not set up the information itself is we're led to believe that this is the case for most of the novel but the way in which our character acquires the information is not something that's been set up or pay off paid off Uh, Mm -hmm. this is just strictly a contrivance yeah Yeah. it's convenience that's okay fair it's not it's not a full detriment to the story it's just unfortunate because so much of the rest of the story is so well grounded that it's, these mystery elements really get swept up in the rest of it. It is unfortunate in that the only way this payoff feels satisfying to me that I can see going forward is if it's entirely wrong and mm. every worst case scenario comes true in that this is entirely circumstantial and there was a major piece of information that we've been missing that completely overwrites all of our presuppositions about what we've learned. And then that pays off her naivete or rather it pays off naivete in general, right? Like it pays off Ardell's perspective, which is that like this is ill begotten. It's not proof. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only way I see this being a meaningful payoff. Sure. That makes sense to me. I dig it. Mm -hmm. Okay. We move back to Wax, and this is almost entirely internal dialogue and thoughts on what he should be doing in these moments. We talked about it earlier, but Wax is broken after bringing Lessie back up into the equation and like really hitting him. Uh, he contemplates leaving, but that brings him to thinking about his perspective on freedom. To quote here, no, freedom was not the lack of responsibilities. It was being able to do what was right without having to worry it was also wrong. And man... 
he's really grappling with his own like deep dark thoughts in these moments especially as he contemplates the general idea of being a lawman in the yeah. moment yeah it's a really fascinating perspective and definition of freedom um, mm-hmm. i think it's right to point out the darkness that wax is wrestling with it here i think that would probably though ring true for him even if he wasn't kind of in this scenario he's always going to feel like that, that definition of freedom is always going to ring true for him even if there's not this this sort of moral ambiguity looming over him i think that's just how he approaches law enforcement bringing it back to batman his his he he embodies batman here like his sense of justice is entirely predicated on vindication and retribution not legal justice He's a firm believer in Ruff's justice is is what it feels more and more like. Like he, but he's willing to abide by other rules, but he believes in that kind of firm person to person justice more and more. And uh, PJ, I don't know what you're talking about with vindication because that's just a gun. Fair. Good point. But yeah, no, I, I totally get it, obviously. Uh, no, no, I think it's def- a great read. I'll defend the vindication is just a gun part too. In Because that- <laughs> <laughs> I think you could still make that work. You could arguably still make that work. Actually, even in the way that you were phrasing it in the moment, I was like, hmm, my vindication joke that I have here probably isn't going to be that good, huh? The moment you said vindication, <laughs> I was like, well, I got to bring it up. But yeah, no, for sure. I, I really I really do. I appreciate brooding can become a lot in books. If you spend too much time brooding, if you spend too much time doing this. But I think that this is just the right amount of internal reflection, especially considering the dark section in which we just inhabited honestly wax being at his lowest in a couple of a couple of chapters i mean the fact that he defaces his uncle and he couldn't just fucking kill him on the spot or arrest him in some way shape or form you know that feels bad for him and then you have him facing off with bleeder and speaking into his mind which is the, the craziest kind of mind fucky if it's not something you're seriously used to you know, he's had it happen with Harmony, I guess. Harmony being there. But, you know, not... This isn't normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What a what a mess for him. Yeah. Emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. Things are so much more tumultuous than I think he could have ever imagined. Because he's been, he's been doing this for decades. Mm-hmm. And it's never been that difficult for him. Right to center himself and come up with an answer. Yeah, not at all. Never this difficult at the very least. And now there's somebody actually answering external to him. Someone answering the call. Not only, not only is there one person answering the call, there's a couple like, and that brings perspective into question. Yeah. That's so fucked with that. Let's get into our last chapter here of the week. We move in chapter 19, which is our last chapter. We move again to Wayne, and this time we're in a room with Governor Innate, who sends both a disguised Milan and a bewildered Wayne to chat on their own away, and the, and does so under the guise of like, you can't stop someone with ferrochemical speed. Like you're you're incapable of doing that. Don't like what? And they they share a lot in this moment, though. 
in which they have a fun conversation between these two folks, curtain disguises, accents, and the like. They even make comparisons between wearing the bones, wearing the bones as a chondra, and Wayne's opinions on hats and how they're helpful as well. There's just a lot of sort of a building of a of like shared affection or an appreciation for each other here. They even briefly chat about the life of the Chandra and immortality and how now they find a way found a way to end their lives, kind of ceasing to being, not ending in a negative context, more of a choosing to not be alive. What do you think about the whole thing? This is a great little chunk. I mean, because we haven't brought it up yet today, <laughs> this is a jaw-droppingly amazing performance by Michael Kramer. The, this section between Wayne and Milan in that they are constantly shifting accents in a way that is described and makes sense. And they're also maintaining their voice. So, so you have two voices going back and forth, talking to each other, but constantly and modularly changing their accents and Michael Kramer is able to keep up with it and perform it as perfectly as I could have guessed it could have been performed. It is astonishing. And I truly wish every single person that reads this book could listen to that excerpt because it's one of the best audiobook readings I've ever experienced. It's short, it's sweet, and it ultimately doesn't matter that much. But it proves the adeptitude of Michael Kramer and his understanding of what he's doing. Does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. I I, I think that this is an excellent show of skill for Michael Kramer. And it's also part of the reason that this chapter is as long as it is, because it is actually, by page count, as long as the other chapters, the last three chapters, this is not that much of a longer chapter than the last two or three that we've read. The reason that the audiobook is an extra 10 minutes is because he takes time to go through these things and really enunciate the differences as he goes through and says these words as a Tufi and as Wayne readdresses and being like, no, Tufi would talk more like this. And then they adjust and they have this like back and forth. And you really get the feel from one person that there are two characters in the room and they're teaching each other accents, which is great. I wouldn't go so far as to say what you were saying about it being truly one of the most incredible performances ever. I do think Michael Kramer is very consistent at delivering performances like this, but it is one of the most unique scenes I've heard in audio. It is incredible. I I meant one of Michael Kramer's best performances. Oh, it's definitely one of Michael Kramer's best that definitely one of the best that you've heard so far and likely in the top five. Yeah. That's amazing. I don't know. How yeah. Right. Books. Right. He does because I, I thought you were saying audiobooks in general is like, I don't know, man, TGR man, personally TGR man. <laughs> I love, I love Michael Kramer. I listened to Michael Kramer long before I listened to TGR, but I take TGR. If I had to choose gun to head. But either way, this is insane. You're comparing a 9.5 to a 9. Like. Yeah. It's. I love it. I, I just. I just love it. So there's that. It's phenomenal. 
the bones and hat comparison is something that I hadn't expected, but I think makes total sense. But at the same time, makes me wonder, do I think this makes sense because we've ex- like inhabited Wayne's brain for a little bit? So it has like, it makes sense because it, because we've seen it. I don't know. Then we get into the discussion about Condra ending their own lives. And I'm not sure if we're to believe that that is talking about the Condra removing their spikes, which was referred to as the suicide pact. And we've learned obviously now that that's not necessarily a permanent death because those spikes can be reintegrated into and and becomes the same consciousness and the same people. Um, but if those spikes are removed in a way where they can't be reintegrated into the same body, that is effectively suicide. So that's an interesting point to take. And I don't, I don't know what to make of that. Yeah. I, I think that it's something about like, there's more of like a winding down that can happen with the Chondra. Not that it's just removing the spikes, right? Cause like you were saying, the resolution, which is what I was referred to as before, uh, was removing the spikes and turning themselves back into mistrates, basically. So, right, that's that portion of it. Exactly. But if yeah. if those spikes are then rem- like, do we know yet if both spikes need to stay paired in order to reconstitute a chondra? Suggesting that consciousness is stored in the spikes or the pair of spikes is that what you're? suggesting yeah i don't think so i don't think that we know that so any two spikes uh, could reconstitute an existing mist wraith into its previous chondra form likely okay wait i conceptually yeah okay so this probably means that there's a separate death option it's definitely a separate death option this okay. is this is I think as described by Milan, it is completely outside of the resolution. This is meant to be an actual winding down because pulling out the spikes isn't death. It's a loss of sentience, which I think we is a really interesting definition. Now, but they didn't understand that before. Definitely. Definitely. I guess my point is that more now as we understand it, like a loss of sentience isn't exactly death. <laughs> You still exist. You just don't have your wits about you and you could be brought back at any point, right? You're just in stasis. So I I find that that delineation is actually a really important thing and something that often, to be honest, isn't debated in fantasy is more often debated in science fiction as it comes to, you know, people that preserve themselves in computers or otherwise. So it's a nice little it's a nice little appendage to the story being like. Ah, yes, the immortal people do have a death if they choose to accept it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Like, elves never die in Lord of the Rings. True. Until, until like, Is the that true? age. Yeah. They're reborn. Well, there, there's, some, there's some convoluted stuff here, but to explain it as quickly as possible without interrogating it too much, near the third age, they start to 
fade. And so the fading would equal death because of their distance from Valinor and everything else over time. Like they've wandered from the light or the light is no longer there. Right. So they have to head back when they were dying in the second age and the first age, they would basically respawn at the tree. However, at a certain point, the tree stopped respawning them when they were on middle earth. Basically. God, I need to go back and reread all this. Yeah, yeah, there's there's a fucking lot there. But that's that's effectively the rules. That's that's how it shook out. So yeah. most elves didn't experience death. But there there was a there was a time in the second age in which they did, and that was because the AR did not agree with what the elves were doing on Middle Earth and did not believe that it was of the light. And so they changed mm-hmm. the rules of the tree for a while. So anyway. Regardless. So getting back to the story here, Brunette eventually arrives and there's a bit of confrontation between these two. Even it does, if, even, even if it just does rotate around Wayne holding onto a bullet and kind of this idea of him even being associated with a gun, he gets that similar kind of sickness that he feels. He keeps pressing this romance angle though with her, of course, and she won't budge even the slightest bit. Yeah, I, I'm sure that someone who understands psychology better than I do could dig into the trauma that Wayne has faced and how that might change how he interacts and perceives affection. But that's not me. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not going to pretend to be one on the internet. Wait, really? You're not? Hmm? Just kidding. But what I can see is that Like the idea that she's not digging at him as hard as she usually does is unusual. So something is wrong. And the fact that he sees that as her being less interested in him is definitely kind of a red flag about his perception of healthy relationships. But I don't know where to go from there, you know? Like there, there is sort of an inverse here when it comes to the perception of affection when it comes to Wayne, but I couldn't, I couldn't tell you what that actually means. There's definitely something to the psychology of Wayne here, right? Which is to say that like a lot of his life has been driven around the idea of servitude to others. And that servitude specifically coming through, not always, but a lot of the time through demeaning people, like people demeaning him for the actions that he's taken in the past, right? And so I think in these moments in particular, we can point to Renette and be like, well, part of the reason that he's sticking around is because he's recognizing the same sort of abusive patterns that he's lived with and like that he's absorbed into his life, right? The fact that she pushes back against him in a lot of the same ways that the family that he gives money to, you know, for killing their father. It's it's the same kind of thing. And so he's created some cyclical patterns in his lifestyles where he, he's become subservient to those people. I mean, wax is different, but even the origin with wax is a similar basis where there's there's power there that wax has over him wax doesn't wield it by any stretch he doesn't hold it over his head or even consider holding it over his head but it's still it's still a thing i think that we can talk about in the back of his mind right so yeah makes the whole thing 
So it, it makes the relationship with Renette a very interesting. Yeah. So we move from there to Marisi and Aradel and his appointment as High Lord Constable. He shakes it off, not having anticipated this, I mean, position of power that he would be placed in, as well as the fact that he doesn't have the lordship with which to claim it. But then he proceeds to land a plan to gather up the Constable Generals in the mansion as a base of operations. They take off on horses, the pair of them, and I really appreciate the little internal monologue here about modesty and society really being unable to refuse women women's roles in society, despite also demanding unjustly similarly ladylike behavior from these people. And as Marcy states, it's a heavy double standard. Like there this is a lot that's kind of going on here. There there's some plot beats, but then there's also this monologue, right? Yeah. There, we finally get to the there's very obviously the modern day real world parallel that can be made between like that little bit of narration and our society as a whole. And mm-hmm. in that respect, I think, I think this monologue does a really good job of making that point very succinct and clear. So I think it adds a ton of clarity. And I think that that's a lot of the intent here is to like really layer on understanding onto the double standard of being expected to perform and hold these stasises and how that's unfair versus other people of other stations. But Mm -hmm. that said, we finally get to the confrontation and what you wanted to share throughout this entire section that there is corruption here of the governor innate and how he's ran his government and bringing this to the constable general. And now I think high Lord constable general's attention. What do you, what do you think about Aridel in this moment, the information that is being brought. We talked a little bit about how she acquired it and obviously the sort of nature of the information. But what do you think about his position against the information and as such how he is positioned for or against innate himself? I I like that we don't have that sort of trope of how would you call it? This beat cop finding something and blowing the lid off of a giant story. Because Aridel knows, based on previous conversations with Marisi, and and basically figures that this is going to be coming down the pipe soon. But it still feels satisfying to present it. And to to I fought against the fact that this could be considered proof, but it's more proof than it was. And it's being presented and that's still satisfying. It, so I think, I think there's a realm of realism that we're plopped into that feels good to be within. And who like, I, I don't know if that's any more realistic than actual realism, but it feels more realistic. I don't know. I, I think that it, it leads us to a conclusion, Right. And it, mm-hmm. it is that regardless of the the circumstantial nature or the nature in which the information was claimed or any of the other portions of information that we've even gotten from other perspectives, such as Innate's brother, it is we can draw the conclusion that Innate is a corrupt government official. Regardless of whether or not they can prove it, we know at this point that Innate is a bad dude. For sure. Especially considering the way that he runs the city. Ardell had his hunches and suspicions. This goes further to help some of those things, but at the same time, 
it's not conclusive like we had determined before. It's not the single piece of information. It's circumstantial in a lot of cases and also acquired by ill-begotten means. I mean, so, all of it comes from Marisy, right? In every direction? No, no. I'm sorry. Are you talking about the information as it comes to Aridel? Yeah. No, I think that there's some outside kind of general conversations and undercurrents. And this okay. is reaffirming undercurrents. Okay. This is the solid, this is the quote, solid evidence quote on top of the whole thing. It's not solid, but it's enough to point in the direction of like, there is a genuine undercurrent here. And this is real information, despite maybe not being, you know, concrete enough proof to put in front of a jury to, you know, pull the man out into the town square, the Lestaborne square and uh, flog him. But, you know, it's enough. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of my core point. That makes sense. Yeah. So we return to Wax as he visits the field of rebirth. He notes right off the bat and... I, I think that it's crucial that it looks the same as it did when the world ended in the last trilogy. We get a lot of splashes of the old trilogy here throughout the originators of which of whom have each been given names like the Lady of Truth, which appears to have gone. I, I guess that's maybe a question. Did the does Lady of Truth go to Tindwell or does it go to our Lady Rioter? Fuck no. But there. <laughs> yeah of course you'd say that but but there's a there's a lot of like fun little beats that happen here inside of the originator tomb there's the mm-hmm. the dachshund pages there there's some uh, doxil uh, epigraphs or something like that there's a number of different writings that are stored there are all of the different components here that are really excellent and everyone's kind of given names in various degrees except for hammond and i i you know <laughs> God, I fucking love Ham. And the fact that like Ham doesn't have a nickname is the most simultaneously fitting and unbefitting thing for him. And you know what? It just paints him as a regular dude among a bunch of a bunch of guys. And at the same time, I think that's what he would have wanted because he was always the soldier's friend. You know, I don't know for sure. Ham's Ham's position is fun. Yeah, he is. I thought what was really funny beyond the Ham thing was the description of the field of rebirth being maintained exactly as it was. But all the flowers are cultivated and curated in a line and there are porta potties and like there's very clearly inspired by but not maintained exactly as described. So I found that funny. I don't know. I, I do agree with you. I think that there's something kind of humorous about the idea that this would ever be preserved exactly as it was. Mm-hmm. And I, I have this sinking sensation to some degree that over the eras, this field will slowly and slowly become smaller. And that makes me sad, but is also something that happens over generations of time. So right. we'll see. True. All right. We end this chapter this week with wax eventually making his way into the museum and then down into the tomb slipping through and noticing a number of different replicas and artifacts specifically there are two pairs that are mentioned there's harmonies bands and then there's also the bands of mourning when he's confronted by a voice to end this week that says i've been waiting for you and that's where our weekends yeah fuck that's so fucked dude 
Why would you do this to me? This is such a great chapter in PJ. It's not. There was nothing it's so better. Dumb. I hate you. There, there was nothing better. This is such a good this end. This is so good. The option was to end here or in the last chapter. And I was like, this is where we this end for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's great. It's great. Yeah, it is. Did you, you listened to it. Yep. Did you have any takeaways on the voice? Do you have any thoughts, predictions? This could I be? mean, it's hard to overshadow anything beyond that that section of voice with Wayne and Milan. Mm-hmm. But in general, it's all done so well. It's hard to rag against anything. Honestly. Oh, no, no, no. I meant, do you, do you have any guesses as to who the character is? That's oh, 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 yeah. oh. Do you think it's new? Do you think it's existing? I don't know. I can't recall. It felt bleeder-like. Sure. I don't think it's anyone that's already established within this book or I think within this series. Oh, wait. Actually, I take that back. It sounded very much like Marsh. And it makes sense. It makes sense for him to meet Marsh. So I'm going to go ahead and guess it's Marsh. Okay. Yeah. All right. I dig. It's exciting. I'll turn that into a little mini prediction. We'll find out next week because we end the book next week, which is so much fun. Yes. So that's going to be very fun here. Obviously, we've got some predictions that are going to be paid off, but nothing is immediate here. So we'll see if those pay off next week or if we hold them over between books here. So next week, we're reading Shadows of Self, chapters 20 through the end. Chapters 20 through the end. That's it. And, and then we're through the fucking book already. Mm-hmm. So that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you, as ever, to our producers, Tim and Andrew, for helping us keep our show's lights on. You can check out all of the links in the show notes where you can find our schedule, our Patreon, our previous episodes, our websites, all of our social media accounts, all in one very convenient location. You read that. But we would also, we would also like to take... A second to thank our new mixologist star Woo-hoo! Star thanks for is amazing and it's great to have you in on the discord server and anybody who wants to could be just as amazing as star maybe as amazing as star if you were to do the same perhaps yeah join us for all the various live events and all the other shows that we do so we really appreciate that of course as pj had mentioned earlier you can find us on patreon previous things everything like that but if you want to search us out specifically words whiskey pod on twitter instagram reddit words and whiskey show at gmail.com if you want to send us any kind of questions thoughts or anything about the episodes that you love or enjoy we're going to see more from we, we'd love to hear from you guys every time we do. So really appreciate it. You can check us out and support us as PJ had mentioned, patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey. And we have t-shirts on T public for the moment that link is available inside of our show notes. So definitely check that out beyond that. We are so glad to have you guys. We're so glad to be back. I mean, I know that it was effectively just like a week break, but I'm very glad to be back doing this consistently again after the like two week break of breaking my busting my hand and everything else. So we're almost big, to the point big, where you get to write notes again. 
yeah, big thank you to uh, to PJ for picking up my editing slack in more show than one, but greatly appreciate that. And uh, you know, see you guys, see you guys next week. We're gonna end that. You know what? I do want to. I do want to tease something else. I think maybe we had talked about this before, but if not. Our we this book we will be having a guest to wrap up the story. Alloy of Law felt like it was so short, quick, easy. That didn't die. I, I mean, if we could have found someone that made sense, we would have probably done it. But yeah, I mean, it was a quick, easy, breezy read. This one I feel like makes a lot of sense, especially being the first book in a trilogy that we want to wrap up and talk about and everything like that. So we'd over we're having overly average Ben from YouTube join us to talk about shadows of self not this week mind you or not next week mind you but the week following so we're very excited to have that little wrap up to discuss this excellent entry in mistborn yeah super exciting should be a very good time for everyone involved mm-hmm. yes quite mess cool with that we'll see you next week bye bye